Hello, and welcome to episode 67 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is my girlfriend, Dana Nyland. Welcome back to the podcast, Dana. How are you doing? I am doing well. Um, It's amazing to be here on episode 67. Huge fan of the podcast, so it's great to be back. Thank you so much. Maybe you can come back in two more episodes, and that'll be super exciting. Maybe I can. Maybe. So, Dana, last time you were on the podcast, we gave our predictions for the 2020 Emmys. And your predictions were slightly more correct than mine. So congratulations. who's counting? Yeah, I'm counting. That was a really fun episode, though. So, listeners, you should definitely go back and listen to that and see how wrong we were with our predictions. Um, I think, Dana, you just got, like, exactly half of your predictions correct? I believe correct? so. Yeah. So we we sucked it up, but go back and listen to the episode. It was a ton of fun. This week, we're going to be discussing some mildly Halloween-themed films. Uh, I am talking about the Harry Potter films. So this week, what we'll do is we'll be talking about the first four Harry Potter films, and then we'll do another episode in the future to talk about the final four Harry Potter films. And then maybe, maybe we'll do a third episode to talk about the Fantastic Beast films, if I want to sit through those again. Dana, I know you haven't seen them. I've not, but I've heard some mixed reviews. Yeah, so we'll see, maybe. But for now, we're going to be focusing on Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, and The Goblet of Fire. So the way that this is going to work is that for the most part, we'll be talking about the films chronologically. We may hop around a bit or talk about the franchise as a whole, but we'll do our best to be relatively chronological with all the films. And with that, all of our conversations will be spoiler filled. So this is your one and only spoiler warning for the entire Harry Potter franchise. Uh, If you haven't seen the movies, then you, you should go watch them and listen to this later. And as usual, with these special episodes, we'll be skipping our usual point two section. So before we begin, uh, I want to quickly address that the Harry Potter film series is based on an incredibly successful book series, and that book series is written by an incredibly not great person who recently has said a lot of very hurtful and hateful things. So for our purposes, Harry Potter will be written by Daniel Radcliffe from here on out. Dana, would you like to say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give too much airtime to the to the J.K., news that's been cycling through these past few months but i i just do i guess want to know just how disappointing it's been to to watch this person who so many of us sort of grew up you know idolizing her and even if not her just like feeling so enmeshed by her work and feeling that was part of our childhood and for someone who really made this almost community that where it felt like everyone could belong to Mm -hmm. then say things that are so alienating um, and so hurtful to to so many people has just been really, really upsetting. And I think it's it's been like you and I have had multiple conversations about this, about how, you know, we still like Harry Potter and we still love Harry Potter. And so we're still holding on to that despite our qualms with the author. Yeah, well said. So, um, yeah, we definitely don't endorse anything that she said. And Honestly, shame on her. It's it's a real shame that such a great book series was written by somebody who turned out to not be a very good person. But uh, with that, let's go ahead and move on to our conversation. I think we'll start with a general conversation about Harry Potter, just the franchise as a whole. Dana, there are a ton of franchises that kind of define generations of kids growing up. Was Harry Potter one of those franchises for you? Yeah, I mean, Harry Potter is so embedded in my memory that it almost just evades any observable phenomenon of discovering it. <laughs> like, I don't remember 
coming to it or it coming to me. It's just always there. And I don't remember how old I was when my dad started reading the books to my brother and me. I do know the first book came out in 97, so we were just two. So it was yeah. probably a few <laughs> years after that, but but honestly, not many. And I don't remember when he stopped reading them to us and when we started reading them ourselves, but I would ultimately go on to read them an innumerable amount of times. And, you know, I've seen the first, these first few movies I've seen so many times because these came out when we were little. Um, and so the the latter half, not as many times, but these first couple movies that we're going to be talking about were a huge part of my childhood. Yeah, same with me. These first couple movies were the ones that we owned on VHS back when that was a thing. <laughs> and we would always plug them in again and again. They're always on TV, especially it was important for me to get to see these movies on TV because I didn't have cable mm. until I was in like third or fourth Sad. grade. So they were on the basic cable channels, which was nice. Um, and I do remember my dad reading me these books growing up. Uh, I distinctly remember him reading me Prisoner of Azkaban. So I think that may have been the very last one. And then maybe I, from there on, read them by myself. But yeah, I love these books. I love this series. Um, I'm hit or miss with some of the movies, I will say. But I think these first ones are just, they're so nostalgic filled that it's almost hard to assess them critically, which we will try to do. So I'm assuming you saw the books before you saw the movies, right? Yes, I definitely read the first few books before I saw the movies. I Again, I can't remember the exact breakdown because I was so young. I do know the first movie came out in 2001. Mm -hmm. So when we were, you and I were the same age. Um, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so the first movie it's came- It's the information <laughs> that the listeners must know. Um, the first movie came out in 2001. So you and I were six years old. And the fourth book had actually already come out in 2000. She, she was really churning these out because the first book came out in 97 and the fourth book came out in 2000. So these, you know, are like boom, boom, boom. The yeah, opposite no of Game a of George R.R. Yeah. Martin <laughs> scenario. Yeah. Um, so, so there was already so much anticipation for this first movie when it came out, which is mm -hmm. weird to think about, um, you know, that, that the series was still was already sort of, you know, midway through and it had already blown up and there was so much anticipation for this first movie. It's also interesting when I was thinking about the timeline of this, how close this was to when the Star Wars prequels came out. <laughs> yeah. Um, which famously many people don't like. I am a bit of a prequels apologist. But it, you have this contrast of, you know, this really old IP and this really fresh um, thing. And I think that that's part of the reason that Harry Potter was so exciting for so many people because it was this brand new almost welcoming a new generation into this is going to be the thing that you talk to your kids about in the way mm -hmm. that the generation before had Star Wars. Yeah, and I think what's most interesting about this franchise as like an adaptation is that a lot of people came to these movies or came to the franchise through these movies yeah. as opposed to being fans of the book and then hopping onto the the film series. I also, I think, read some of the books before the first movie came out, but who knows? And they're so almost ingrained with each other mm -hmm. that it's hard to separate them. Like, I don't have a uh, perception of Harry Potter in the books versus perception of Harry Potter in the movies. Harry Potter is Daniel Radcliffe to me. So when I read the books, I think of Daniel Radcliffe. And the same with all the other characters. I don't know about you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting now. I, I, I work in an elementary school, and I know some some pretty young kids who are reading the books with their families, but they're they're not allowed to watch the movies yet, which I thought was interesting because I don't, again, I don't remember how old I was when I first watched the movies, but 
the the kids are telling me that their parents won't let them watch the movies yet because they're too mm. scary. So I wonder when like the common consensus is in like parent internet forums of like when can I show my kids, you know, the first couple of Harry Potter movies. Yeah, it's pretty cool that these are still popular now. Oh yeah, and that yeah. Kids are still reading them. Do you think this book series would have been as popular if his name was Mitch Potter? Um. Because I feel like Harry Potter just rolls off the tongue. I mean, I do think Harry Potter is a good name. I, I, Mitch specifically, I, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know if the magic, if the magic, no pun intended, was in the name or not. Um, we can only, we can only speculate. Yeah. Maybe there's a Freakonomics article on it. Maybe. Uh, let's go ahead and start talking about the first film. This is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? So I think what we'll do here is we kind of have these main categories that we'll try and hit for each of these movies. And the first one that we'll do to start each conversation is just asking about the overall thoughts of the film and how it works as a film. So Dana, what are your thoughts on the very first Harry Potter film? So dealing with all these expectations that we've been talking about, I think that it works really well. Again, as this, the first two movies I think of as sort of as their own sort of contained mm -hmm. story that feels a little bit more family adventure movie oriented rather than the kind of um, angst that starts to come in a little bit at the third movie. So I think this movie is the perfect amount of scary for where the franchise was at the time. Um, and I think that it does a really efficient job of world building something that will ultimately prove pretty colossal throughout the franchise. Um, and there's not much even having seen all the movies that you look back on and say, you know, wow, they really missed the mark on that, you, not knowing where the rest of the films would be going. So I think that's pretty impressive for something that's so expansive. Surprisingly, little feels dated in the movie in and of itself. And I think that the aspects of the film that do feel dated feel that way because of the tonal divergence in the series later on and not so much because of when the movies came out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think what this film does very well is selling you on the wizarding world, mm -hmm. right? In some ways, this film has the hardest task because it has to tell everybody who hasn't read the books that, hey, there's something here and we want you to be a part of it. And I think in another way, it also has a really easy task because it's really easy to sell the Wizarding World. Yeah. This movie is the audience vicariously living in the Wizarding World. There's not really a ton of story here. I mean, there is some story, but it's mostly just introducing you to the idea of who's Voldemort, who's Harry, who are all these people? Why do we care? And I think that the film does a really, really good job at doing that. It's probably the most magical film in the series mm -hmm. because, as you say, as the the film franchise grows up, or as the audience members theoretically grow up, so does the film franchise. And it becomes darker and angstier and, to be frank, a little less fun. And I think this is just a really, really fun film. And it is, of course, a kid's movie, which means there's kind of a lot of really dumb things that happen in this where they're like, you know, something will just happen and it doesn't necessarily make sense if you think about it with any form of scrutiny. But... I think it works for this film because the main goal is just introducing you to the world and saying you're going to come back every two years. Yeah, and I think that it does a really efficient job in loading exposition, yeah. especially into the beginning of the movie. Um, 
like the book opens with a lot of description, you know, about Privet Drive and the Dursleys, and we get all of this really quickly, and the relationships are established in a like a satisfyingly show don't tell mode that a lot of movies geared towards kids don't give the audience like the credit to being able to sort of figure things out, mm-hmm. which you know when you're when you're an adult watching the movie back can be really tiresome, and you don't really get that in these movies, and you know with this being said, you have. Fiona Shaw and Richard Griffiths, who play Aunt Petunia and um, <laughs> Uncle Vernon, are so kind of like comic book villain evil. So it's sort of using that kind of really over the top acting to sell all this exposition quickly. But I do think that it ends up working because we don't have time. You know, this this these books are long. We don't have time to, you know, spend half an hour like we might in another movie with the evil family in the beginning. So they're just like, no, these people suck. Okay, moving on. Yeah, it's a a very classic thing in kids' movies where they kind of underplay how awful certain things are because, like, if you stop and think about it, like, this is child abuse. They are abusing Harry. There is a whole Oscar-winning drama about Harry going through the freaking British version of child services and, you know... All of this stuff, like they are incredibly abusive, but you kind of just do the, oh, haha, child abuse, let's move on. And in some films it doesn't work, but for this one it does. Because again, like you're saying, it's just, we don't have time for that. We're getting to the good stuff. And it's it's very clearly just, look, Harry's life sucked. Now it doesn't. Don't you want that to happen to you? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think um, that part of that speaks to the the really good casting mm-hmm. that um, that was done for this movie in, you know, both those smaller Petunia and Vernon roles, but also in in the main trio, I think that this movie, you know, they're not they're not perfect child actors, but I think that you know we could have we could have had a lot worse than what we got, and I think that we meet them in this movie, and you know, watching them grow up over the course of the franchise is pretty fun, and I do think that they the three main kids do a pretty good job in this movie. Yeah, I think they're definitely better child actors than they are young adult actors. I'll say that, <laughs> but maybe we save that for the second half where yeah. stuff gets a little wonky. Um, just before going into specifics, one thing that I thought that I was able to notice upon this rewatch and is true for all of the films, but particularly good in this first film, is that these films do a very basic storytelling level thing by having scenes that set something up and then paying those off in later scenes. So every single scene that you have in like a classroom at Hogwarts or at like a dinner table, it all sets up something or introduces something new about the world that then pays off later in the film or sometimes even later in future films. So if you think about every single scene that happens, it's telling you something about the world, but it's not a frivolous detail. It's telling you specifically because you need to know that later on. So you have the scene of Ron and Harry playing chess at Christmas That obviously pays off when they do big boy chess and Ron has to sacrifice himself. Uh, You have the scene of them learning Wingardium Leviosa, which pays off in the scene with the mountain troll. And then again, in the second movie, you have all of these things of Harry learning about like the mirror of Erised that pays off in the climax. And I think in a bad movie that like setup and then payoff is really on the nose and really clear. And it seems really awkward and clumsy. But I think that the way that these films do it is really just a testament to like how efficient the script writing is of all Mm -hmm. of these movies. And then also specifically how good Stephen Cloves, who does basically all the scripts for this, 
how good he is at taking adaptations of giant books and just stripping it down to the bare elements of what's needed for the story, which I think is incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that when the later movies were coming out and I was more, you know, in step with what was going on, you know, around the time when the fourth and fifth movie were coming out, I was really wondering, you know, how are they taking these huge books and how do they decide? Because, you know, sometimes you are like, oh, like my favorite scene didn't make it in or I really wanted to see this part. But you do kind of have to reconcile, you know, with these books that just not everything can fit in a movie. So which leaves us with the kind of model that you're talking about where they had to really be they had to comb for what they what they were going to use to move the plot forward, which, again, sometimes can feel kind of grating in some things where you feel like you're watching a and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened movie. Mm -hmm. But I do I do think that it works here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's even really clever sometimes that something doesn't seem super important and then it obviously comes up later. And I mean, like one example is in this movie, you learn about Firenze in the forest. And if you don't have that scene, the scene in The Order of the Phoenix makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And so I don't mean I don't want to say maybe they just got lucky with that particular example. Like, I don't know if they knew that they had to introduce centaurs mm -hmm. in the first book, but just little things like that, like paying off later in the franchise. Even the the very first scene of Harry doing magic sets up that he's a parcel tongue, which is not yeah. a thing in this movie. I was I was going to mention that, too. I think that that's something that that I thought was really cool, realizing how quickly in the first movie we actually do learn that he speaks Parseltongue, but we mm -hmm. don't know that that's even weird, you know, because we're like, oh, well, we're in a magical world. You know, I guess he can speak to animals. And we don't find out until midway through the second book and movie that that's actually weird. And so I think that that's actually a pretty cool thing that you can go back and be like, oh, wait, but we we already knew that. Yeah, something about these like franchise or these book series that have a ton of different books um, in them. Every time I read them, I'm like, how much did the author that should not be named know about what the end of this book series was going to be when he or she was writing the first book or the second book? And I mean, I, I do think that she made some of it up along the way. Like, I don't think that the book was supposed to be a horcrux in, you know, the diary or whatever. But I, I it is interesting to see that she clearly sets things up earlier and then pays them off. It's really cool. Oh, yeah. No, I, I do think that she had a... Pr a a very holistic idea of where she was going. I agree, not every single little detail, but I think that it was it was very mapped out, which is which makes for a really satisfying read. And I think that is one of the reasons why this series is so successful. And it is just so, you know, you feel fulfilled typically after finishing a book or a movie because you feel like, you know, this is going somewhere and it's been going somewhere and it's mm -hmm. all leading up to something. Yeah. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because, you know, we got four movies to get to, but I do want to talk just a little bit about the general introduction to the wizarding world, because in this movie, we learn so much about the wizarding world so quickly. And I think most of it works, um, but I do think that there are a lot of things in the wizarding world that are really stupid and do not hold up under any amount of scrutiny if you just think about them for even a second. Uh, but I want to throw it to you first, Dana. Do you have any like lingering questions or comments or concerns about the Wizarding World and how it's set up in this movie and for the franchise as a whole? Yeah, well, I, I know a little bit about where you're going to go. So I, there are a few topics that I know um, I need not sort of begin to delve into. 
One thing I will say that I've that I've pretty much always found kind of I don't get this is I can't believe that they actually call Voldemort you know who. Like all <laughs> of these adults are walking around like you know who. Like at least if you don't want to say his name, which I don't I don't understand and there isn't historical precedent for. Like like we talk about Hitler, we talk about Stalin and it's not like a thing of like yeah. oh if you say the name then you know that's bad. And and those are really awful people and so but okay but even if we grant them you're not going to say the name why couldn't they have come up with like a code name or like a nickname to be like you know why did they have to say you know who and he who must not be named i just think all these adults just sound ridiculous saying it um so this isn't that serious of a gripe but it's just something that's always bothered me i think that's a fair gripe that's super weird (laughs) Um, one, I'll say one other that, um, just a small note is that I think that it's because of this movie that when I was a kid, I thought that banks worked like this, where all of your money was just like sitting in a small (laughs) room in the bank. And for this reason, I thought that the stakes of bank robberies were so high because I thought that someone could break into your little money room and steal all of your money. And then you just wouldn't have any money anymore because this is apparently how Gringotts, the most secure place in the world, works. Um, There are also a lot of kind of corollary questions to the fact that Harry is so wealthy. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about this. (laughs) Okay, I'll let you I'll let you because I'm sure you have a little a little spiel prepared. No, no, I'm saving my big spiel for the topic that, you know, that I'm most passionate about. But I just... The idea of wealth in the wizarding world makes no sense to me because I I understand that there are rules of magic that you like can and can't do. And I think the books and like Pottermore and all that shit go into that in a lot more detail. But why are the Weasleys poor? What do they not? How do you even get paid in this world? What are you paid with? And what are you spending? nuts and sickles. Thank you. But what are you (laughs) spending that money on? Because you can just whip up pretty much anything. You go when we see the Weasley's house in the second film, which I guess I'm hopping a little forward, but you see that they have magical pots and pans that clean themselves. In the fourth book, you see that you can make a tent as large as you want, even though it's super small. Like you can do magic to solve vo- virtually any problem. So, what is the point of wealth at all? And what is the point of poverty? And like how I, I just don't get how any of that works in the wizarding world because the wizarding world has magic, which is literally a magical fix to anything. Yeah, no, I I agree with that, and I and it has made me wonder before, you know, what was the significance of making Harry wealthy? Like, why was that a choice? Yeah, Especially I, I think I, it's that um, the same idea of um, what is it called, uh, vicarious living? Like, just this is sort of like a fantasy come true. Like, this kid has nothing, and now he has everything, mm-hmm. sort of thing, except his parents. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it just also is sort of a classic tale of you know he's he's an orphan and he's poor, but now it's like. He's an orphan, but well, he's got some gold. But like, we never really see what he does with it. Like, it's mentioned throughout, of like, oh well, you know, Harry has money, but and you know, the Weasleys don't. And also, why doesn't he give them some? Um, <laughs> you know, or like, even not just like for free, but you know, he lives with an aunt and uncle who hate him, and he hates them. Harry has a lot of money. The Weasleys have love him and could house him, and he could pay them what many would call rent. To live with them. And I just think that, you know, there's a lot of little arrangements that they could have maybe worked out here that they did not arrive at. He basically buys candy once for Ron. And then he's like, thanks for letting me live in your home every summer. 
And that's about it. I mean, maybe there are some off-screen transactions or something. I, I could also imagine that the Weasleys are like they have too Venmo. proud yeah. to accept the money or whatever. Magical Venmo. Uh, my, my question is, do you think that Lily and James Potter had wizard life insurance? Is that a thing? Well, so I've, I haven't wondered specifically that, I will say, because I have wondered, you know, where did they get all this money? Because they died quite young. And so I don't, I don't imagine that they, you know, made all of this wealth it's themselves. Be life or, well, or one, was one of them wealthy, like from, was like intergenerational wealth? I don't know. But it couldn't have been Lily because she was Muggleborn and this is wizarding money. Although there is, you can't exchange your money, I guess we're led to believe. But maybe Harry's grandparents were rich. I don't know. I, I, I would have to look into the, the life insurance situation. Yeah, they never give a shit about Harry's grandparents. Like, yeah, never that's just not explained. And they like could like they shouldn't in theory be that old. Like many people who are eleven have grandparents yeah. who are alive. Well, and Lily and James Potter were like twenty five. Yeah. So theoretically, they could be like sixty. Yeah. But but yeah. all four of them are apparently out of the picture. Yeah, I guess so. Or they've just disowned Lily and James Potter. I mean, like maybe. No, but the the whole thing is that Petunia's parents are just like, oh, they they loved Lily, and Lily was number yeah. one girl. Um, so I don't really know what's going on there. Um, if you do know, reach out. Yeah, please. Um, I think this idea of life insurance also points to the idea that the wizarding world has a lot of um, gaps in what I would say is traditional 90s technology and culture. And I mean, I get part of that is like the the magical nature of it. Like, oh, we're like the old witches from yore or whatever. But there's a lot of things like like students still have to use a quill and pen at Hogwarts. The typewriters exist at the very least, but computers are starting to exist as well. There doesn't appear to be electricity in Hogwarts. Like, what is the point of that? Why? I had a similar question. I, I think that those are all valid questions. And my question is relatedly on that line of thought about technology is why do they use brooms to fly? Because <laughs> if they could, in theory, like enchant anything to be their like flying aid, is the implication that it's a nod to the fact that our society knows about like witches on brooms and then that's somehow like rooted in the Harry Potter reality? Maybe it's an homage. Like to the, to the concept to the of the witches of yore. Yeah, like, but what, why a broom? Like, what? Do, like, do they think that brooms are for flying and that they've been repurposed for cleaning and not the other way around? Like, I, I truly have wondered. Yeah, I mean, this is all. I, I think that a common thing about all of these things that we will be complaining about in this episode is that, like, the answer is, oh, it's just kind of a clever nod to things. But this is what we're doing on this podcast. We're overthinking everything, so get used to it. <laughs> Um, so we also learn about Hogwarts for the first time in this book, and I have a lot of problems with how Hogwarts is managed, but I think one of the most common complaints is that like Hogwarts doesn't care about its students and everything. I'm just going to move past that. Clearly in this pandemic, we can see that many schools don't care too much about their children. One of my questions is just how teachers, like what is the life of a Hogwarts teacher like? Because from what I can tell, there's a single defense against the dark arts teacher and you teach every single and, and every single student every single year at Hogwarts takes a defense against the dark arts class, which seems to imply that the defense against the dark arts teacher 
is teaching seven years worth of Defense Against the Dark Arts material. Not only is that incredibly difficult to prep to prep for, but like, how do you have the time in the day to do that? Maybe they all have time turners. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either, but I don't know the answer. And then we also have the divinity teacher who... D- divination? Yes, sorry, divination. Divination is only taught a couple years. So like, she only has a handful of classes. What does she do with the rest of her time? I don't know. And of course, Hogwarts also doesn't have math or anything like that. But could you imagine being a math teacher and having to teach seven seven different levels of math? I can't. That seems imbi- none of this makes sense. I don't understand <laughs> any of it. And and the the way that the, like how do the teachers make money? Do they live on campus? Do they even have a house? Do they have families? Is there tuition? Actually, I know the answer to that. Um, it's paid for by the ministry, which is dope. But I don't know. It it just doesn't. I think the reason that it's so hard to hire a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher is because they're clearly underpaid and overworked. I do have um, some some qualms with the Hogwarts curriculum, but I'm I'm saving them for um, when they sort of are going to come up at a at later specific points in our in our run through here. <laughs> okay, um, I know I did just go on a little bit of a rant about Hogwarts stuff, but this is all just prepping me up for what I think is easily the dumbest part of the Wizarding World. This is Quidditch. Quidditch is the dumbest game that anybody has ever invented. But Dana, I want to ask you first, do you enjoy Quidditch? Do you do you think it's a perfectly reasonable game for children to be playing? So I, I can't pretend to be answering this blind to what you're going to talk about, because I think, you know, after soon after I met Mati, like a couple of times of hanging out, I think he was like, have I have I told you about Quidditch? And I was like, no, I don't think so. And he was like, oh, well, I have to tell you <laughs> because he feels very strongly about this. And many who know him know the feelings that he's about to share. So I don't even know where to start. But basically, for people who are listening to this and have never read the books or never seen the movies, is Quidditch is a game where two teams fly on brooms and take turns throwing balls into hoops So it's kind of like soccer, but there's three goals on either side, right? And you get 10 points when you throw the ball into the goal. That makes perfect sense to me. The thing that really bothers me is how the game ends and the balance between... There's actually three different types of balls. So not only is there the quaffle, which is like the soccer ball that you throw into the goals, there's also something called the snitch, which is a tiny golden ball that one player on each team called the seeker is like trying to find the entire game. And the game goes on. It lasts literally forever. There is no time limit. So the the only way that the Quidditch game ends is when the snitch is caught. And when the snitch is caught, the team that gets it gets 150 points and then the game ends. So that means that the only way that you can win is if your seeker catches the snitch and there's there's a smaller discrepancy between you and the other team of uh, smaller than 150 points. So it virtually means that none of the the quaffle scores matter at all because you can get 150 points more than the other person. But if you don't catch the snitch, then the game doesn't end. So basically, you're just waiting for somebody to catch the snitch. And if your team is losing by more than 150 points, there is no motivation for your seeker to catch the, the snitch and end the game because you will lose even 
if they get the additional 150 points. It makes no fucking sense. It's Unless a terrible it's game. Unless it's the biggest Quidditch game in the world in the World Cup final and you're Victor Crumb and you decide that you should catch the snitch even though your team is losing yeah. by more than 150 points. Yeah, it's really dumb. It's it's the most unbalanced game ever. It'd be like if there was a basketball game that went on forever and everybody was doing two pointers the whole time, but then the game would only end if somebody from the all with all the way from the opposite side of the field tried to make a, a basket like over the entire court and only then does the game end and also that person gets 200 points. Like the <laughs> This is basically gesticulating wildly for those at home. (laughs) This is basically just a seeker versus seeker game. And the Quaffle is just a massive distraction from that. And that's super stupid. I have. Why is there no time limit in this game? Well, I think I mean, there's no time limit in baseball. Yeah. Or cricket or tennis. Those can theoretically go on for days. But at the very least, there's like a back and forth. And there's not one thing that you can do that instantly ends the game. Yeah. Like that. There's two ways to fix this. Either put a time limit or max the number of points. Like if you have, if you say, okay, it's the first person to 150 points or the first person to win by 150 points, then that makes sense because there's a way to, even if you don't catch the snitch, for you to win and for the other people to not be fucking useless on your team. Yeah, I remember being in playing Little League softball growing up and the rules were that we would play seven innings or two hours so yeah. and that was for the parents <laughs> there was mercy because the parents were like we're not staying here to watch you know eight-year-olds play softball for more than two hours so i think that a lot of people are grateful when you institute that kind of rule yeah, this is elementary to middle school sports level too it's just like this is, there's a fucking 11 year old on this team there's no timeouts there's no substitutions no periods quarters rounds nothing like you're just in there the whole time it makes no sense it's ridiculously dangerous too we haven't even talked about the fact then not only is there a quaffle and a snitch, there's also two balls called bludgers that the whole purpose of these two balls and the whole purpose of two of the teammates on either team is to use a bat, a wooden bat, to hit this metal ball at other players. How is that? That's ridiculous. How How is that part of... That's like if in soccer... There were two people on either team who were just allowed to throw a metal ball at the other team while they were playing. Like, that's a ridiculous sport. It doesn't make any sense. Or if there was like a football player who was allowed to just take a a baseball bat and club other people. Yeah, I mean, we do, we do in, you know, the the regular world have some very violent sports. I did. We did have a conversation recently about, you know, the concept of boxing being Kind of like I understand why it exists, but at the same time, but there's no sport that pelts metal at each other like intentionally, right? Yeah, like there's no point to those players other than to hurt other players. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I mean, to say that safety is the top priority of really anyone at Hogwarts would be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, and then any time that these kids ever play Quidditch, there's tons and tons of spectators that are all theoretically magical. And it seems like every goddamn time Harry goes on a broom, somebody tries to kill him. And people just, like, watch. One of my nitpicks, which I guess I'm talking about here, is that in the scene where Harry... I feel like we're well into nitpicks. (laughs) This is not a nitpick. This is a... a, It's bigger than... (laughs) This is a scoop. I don't know. 
one of the things that is ridiculous about the Quidditch scenes in all of these movies is that like Harry Potter's broom gets uh, cursed or whatever. And then the whole idea is that they think that Snape is cursing him because he's actually doing a counter charm, but they don't know it. Like he's the only professor to do a counter charm. Everyone else is just like, oh, that's fine. He'll figure it out. I just childhood endangerment is is pretty rampant in these movies. And I don't understand how Quidditch is an actual sport that people will actually watch and be actually invested in. And that's not even talking about how the Quidditch season in high school is literally three games. Yeah, each team just only play plays three games. And actually, there's this whole thing in the first book I, that I remember that, like, because Harry is off doing Harry things, he misses a game. Like, that's just a third of somebody's season. That sucks. Yeah. It's a stupid game, but whatever. I, I think I'm, I'm fine to move on to more positive things. I, I just, I really <laughs> hate Quidditch, Dana. I know. Do you want to go ahead and talk about most iconic lines from this movie? I would love to. So... When I thought about this, for some of the later movies, I had to kind of like look at lists of quotes and be like, wait, which ones? But for these, this movie, you know, they, they do stick in the, stick in the mind. So if you will, <clears throat> now, if you two don't mind, I'm going to bed before, before either, either of you come, come up with up another, another clever, clever idea, idea to get, get us, us killed, killed or worse, expelled. expelled. Yeah, that's on my She line. needs to sort out her priorities. Yeah, absolutely iconic. Um, and as a sort of goody two-shoes child, I can very much relate to the idea of getting in trouble being worse than death. Because any time an adult raised their voice to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to go jump off or something. Um, we also have famously, you're a wizard, Harry. Oh, very yeah. iconic. Yeah. Um, huge part of my life. Uh, we have, it's Leviosa, not, not Leviosa. Leviosa. And finally, this might be a bit more personal to me, but the way that Ollivander goes, curious, very curious. He's like so creepy. I think that part is terrifying, but I think that <laughs> Ollivander's just like minute long presence in this movie is very memorable. Yeah. Uh, you hit two of mine. The or worse expelled is on my list. And so is it's Leviosa, not Leviosa. I think if we had to pick one, it would be the or worse expelled. I think that's. Yeah seeped in culture yeah um, and it does a lot of legwork and just like this is what hermione's yeah. kind of manifesto <laughs> is yeah um the other one that i have is what dumbledore says the very first time that all the students are in the grand hall he says the third floor corridor on the right hand side is out of bounds to anybody who does not wish to die a most painful death and i just think that that's hilarious because like imagine going to a school as an 11 year old and the very first thing that your headmaster says is, don't go there or you'll fucking die. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't even, like, know the school layout. And they're all just like, okay, that sounds fair. Firm, but fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing we we actually haven't talked about is Richard Harris Dumbledore, mm -hmm. which I think is, is an important tonal part of these first two movies. And like I mentioned before, these feeling like a package deal and that... May he rest in peace. I think that Richard Harris is, like, emblematic of these first two movies being the kind of, like, family-friendly Harry Potter. And then when we move on to Michael um, Gambon, then it's, like, a whole kind of other animal. But in these movies, he just seems so, like, nice and grandfatherly. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, I believe everything you say. And you seem so nice. And I can't imagine him doing 
what the kind of things that ultimately Dumbledore will do. And I wonder at the time what they thought if because that was the plan, you know, that yeah. he was going to because um, he he was not that old when he passed away, I believe. Um, and, you know, there, so it was very much the plan for him to be Dumbledore the entire time. And so they obviously didn't have, I guess, the full extent of what was in store for that character. But can you imagine like Richard Harris, like doing Half-Blood Prince? <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's a great point. Uh, and I completely agree. Like he he is just a beautifully calming presence. And then even in like the third and fourth movie, but especially in the last couple of movies, Dumbledore is like low key unhinged. Yes. And he does some pretty messed up things like he lies to Harry. Obviously, he sacrifices him uh, all this stuff. So I, I couldn't imagine like old ass Richard Harris doing that. But, um, you know. I think he's great in these first two movies and yeah. just another example of how amazing all the casting is in this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to talk about what I'm calling Potter problems, AKA nitpicks? I know I just went over a whole bunch of mine. Uh, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll sit this one out and just let you take it. Okay. So I can just cycle through some of these pretty quickly. One, why is there so much gel in Tom Felton's hair? Two, the outfits Dumbledore and McGonagall are wearing in the opening scene to the biggest franchise in the universe are like Party City costume vibes. Like Dumbledore is wearing this like purple shimmery robe that has these like moons on it. And it truly looks like it came in plastic packaging that a parent went to get the night before Halloween. It was like, fuck, we gotta get the kids something. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, Alfonso Cuaron will just completely stomp on the costuming that they've spent these movies establishing. Three, sometimes the spells are like hippopotamus, waximus, like Latin vibes. And then sometimes they're like screaming up at brooms. I don't understand the way that the kind of lexical culture is is in relationship to how spells work. Yeah, spells are a whole other can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they're so specific. In the second movie, I'll just go ahead and get this one out now because it's, you know, related um, there is a spell called Aranya Exame that Harry knows uh, when they're like fighting the spiders and basically it just blasts the spiders away. And now you might be thinking any spell to blast anything would work in this situation. You but hope. Aranya Exame is literally, I looked it up on Pottermore or whatever, is literally a spell to blast away spiders specifically. <laughs> Why is that a spell? Why is that so specific? Somebody was in a bind at some point in history. Um, my my last one that I'll say for this movie is the points system. Even though this applies beyond this movie, but the point, for the house cup, yeah, the point system for the house cup. Um, yeah, there's some inflation going on. <laughs> yeah, or something. <laughs> I mean, I I think that this has already been kind of hashed out on Twitter and on Tumblr, so we don't need to go into it too much. But, you know, the whole end of the movie where Slytherin is winning and they literally have the Great Hall decorated for Slytherin and then Dumbledore does the whole J.K. Laws, like, yeah. I'm about to <laughs> shake some things up, is is kind of insane. Like, obviously Slytherin sucks, but for the headmaster of a school to just be like, I like these kids, so I'm giving them points, is crazy, especially because it's just so arbitrary. I do think it's funny, though, um, at my first full-time job in a school, my mentor teacher would randomly like say to kids like when they were doing something bad he'd be like i'm taking 10 points off and the kids would freak out 
and they wouldn't be taking a test or anything. He would just say this like <laughs> at random times. And the kids like truly like didn't understand the concept that this wasn't a real thing. Like he'd be like, I'm, you know, I'm, I got to take seven points off. And you don't even have to give like a any more qualifier than that. Kids are so motivated by things like that. <laughs> so I kind of see why for like a behavior management tool, the point system can be good because you can be like, well, if you mess up, I'm taking points away. But then it's also like to give people points for breaking the rules as someone who, again, would have followed all of them. I'd be like, this is not fair that those of us who have been good students all year long have not been rewarded for our behavior. Yeah, I mean, I would be livid as a Slytherin, but even as a Hufflepuff or a Ravenclaw. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'd be like, what the hell? And it's so funny because it's almost like... Dumbledore is trolling the entire school because he gives just enough points for them to tie for all three of the main characters. And then he's like, oh, um, also, here's 10 points, Neville, for uh, standing up to your <laughs> your friend. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, Gryffindor wins. Yeah. And the way that he kind of does it with such intentional dramatic flair, even the way that he reveals Neville's name at the end is as if to knowingly say... And isn't this amazing yeah. that this loser <laughs> is what has changed everything? Yeah. That's all, folks. I'm your headmaster. <laughs> um, yeah, I think those are all great nitpicks. The one last one that I want to talk about is just this idea that there was a group of grown-ass adults that legitimately tried to create an incredibly difficult series of trials and spells to protect one of the most dangerous magical items in the world being the Sorcerer's Stone, of course, which is where the title comes from, fun fact. And it gets thwarted by three 11-year-olds. Imagine how disappointing that must feel that you spent so much time like growing all of this devil's snare and making this magical chess set and all of this stuff, and then it gets thwarted by three 11-year-olds. Yeah, and you know what I think is hilarious? That like a few minutes before they did all this, Imagine like Quirrell playing this chess game alone with yeah. Voldemort just like the back of his head, being like, "No, move the rook over there." Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> I just feel like that would have been awkward to be doing that alone. Like, okay, I'm just gonna play some chess. Yeah, and there's three pieces missing. So does he just play without two of the pieces, or do you think the room adapts to the number of people? Yeah, I don't. It's all. I don't know. Magic, almost. And, and also, like, if you're making the, the key puzzle, like, why would you make the key that opens the door look significantly different from all the other keys? I mean, I guess at some point you want to be able to easily get there if you have to, maybe. But then, like, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I, I just, my first thought about all of this was like imagine if they went as hardcore as whoever created the covenant of the ark in indiana jones imagine if they used google security system for gmail which when you log in on a new device sends the fbi to your home yeah that's true i just i feel like they could have done a lot worse but of course that would have not made for a good movie because yeah. these kids would have died as a reminder, we do like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I So I think one of the things that I think is important to mention is that these movies are in a class of movie that like I have seen so many times and I love so much that like shitting on them is my way of showing how much I love them. It's the same with um, the Lord of the Rings movies, like just watching those and being like, oh, Sam's such an idiot or why did they not do that? You know, it, it, the only reason that you can do that is because you've seen it so many times and that yeah. there's really 
not enough actual things to criticize. So. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to our favorite moments and then uh, wrap up our our thoughts on Sorcerer's Stone. We've already been on this one for quite a while. Dana, what's your uh, favorite moments from Sorcerer's Stone? Uh, one of my favorite moments is the dramatic cut to reveal the Dursley's psychotic Airbnb in the middle of like an ocean. Like, where did they find this vacation rental to escape the mail? Um, it is... As I said to Monty when we were watching it, is extremely reminiscent of Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I cannot imagine how they got to this place. And I just think it's so funny how far they were willing to go. Um, and then just. Uh, By the way, that scene, that whole 20 minute like thing of him not getting his letters would not have happened if he had an email. Um, uh, the nineties, um, (laughs) another just like more sincere moment is when they're approaching the castle for the first time with Hagrid, um, and just the music is just so anticipatory and you're just seeing Hogwarts for the first time. is just like a really fun moment. Uh, and it feels really magical. Yeah. John Williams is low key. The MVP of this film franchise. Yeah. Like the, the, the music is so good and so iconic. Um, but yeah, that that's my like just like actually like heartfelt emotional connection to this movie. I think when I imagine this movie, I think of things like this mm-hmm. where you just you're filled with so much wonder and you feel the wonder that especially Harry feels having just been thrown into the idea of being in this world um, in the way that we as the audience have been, where you just feel like anything could happen and there's so much awaiting you and there's so much whimsy and it's really exciting. Yeah, um, I think my favorite moments are very similar to that. There's actually not too many like action-packed moments in this movie. So I think like, I think one of my favorite moments is just the whole Diagon Alley scene. It's just so good at world building so efficiently and it's just magical. Um, the whole scene of being on the Hogwarts Express where Harry meets Ron and then Hermione. All of that is really good. The characterization is great. You get these little magical moments. You see magic used um, by a child for the first time. And you've got these like great little interactions. Like you've got dirt on your nose. Do you know that? Um, so those are my favorite moments. So, okay, let's go ahead and move on to Chamber of Secrets. This is, of course, the second Harry Potter film. This year... Warner Brothers Pictures presents... How dare you steal that car! The next chapter of Harry Potter. Where the past will return and the struggle for the future of Hogwarts will begin. Ah! Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. We'll just hop right into overall thoughts on the film. Dana, what do you think about Chamber of the Secrets? So if the first film functions to set up this wizarding world for us and introduce us to Hogwarts and, you know, establish the central conflict between Harry and Voldemort as individuals, this second film is really where we get absolutely crucial context on the real schism in the wizarding world and the Mm -hmm. sort of original sin of the series, which begins with Salazar Slytherin's disdain for those who are muggle-born. And like we already we know that Voldemort is evil and we know the Malfoys suck, but we haven't until this film really had a ton of clarity on what's driving them. 
And so we learn in Chamber of Secrets that Slytherin so strongly believed that Muggleborn should not be educated in, at Hogwarts that he actually left the school, not before creating the Chamber of Secrets, hoping that one day his true heir would release the basilisk monster to kill people he found unworthy. And we know from history, anyone who's really obsessed with preserving a pure bloodline is probably bad. Probably, yeah. And I think that I think that this movie does a good job at setting up this this pure blood versus half blood versus Muggleborn thing that will really um, prove important throughout the series. Yeah, I think this movie is like you said when we were talking about uh, philosopher's stone or sorcerer's stone or whatever. Is it's kind of like the second part of the very first act of the Harry Potter film series. It's still really um, family friendly, very childlike. There are some scary moments. I guess the ending with the basilisk is also is pretty scary, but for the most part, it's still a lot of silly things happening, and there's also a lot of dumb things that you kind of have to suspend your disbelief with. And I don't mean like like obviously you have to suspend your disbelief with Harry Potter movies, but even more so that like there are a couple of things that we can talk about that I think are absolutely ridiculous about this movie and don't really track. And like one of those, for example, is that it makes no sense like like the the coincidences that lead to the basilisk not killing anyone are completely (laughs) ridiculous like the fact that that thing is not just walking around slaying everything is silly um but it makes for this kind of like fun mystery film yeah which i think is uh part of these movies that i guess we didn't really talk about in the philosopher's stone because it's not so much there but in these next couple movies a lot of these movies are like here's a mystery and this is where we think it's going. Oh, it's actually going this way. It's a twist. Uh, uh, Gilderoy Lockhart is not who he says he is. And Tom Riddle is not who he says he is. He's Mr. Dildo lover. Um, (laughs) All these things. So I I still enjoy the film quite a bit, even though I think uh, we can talk a little bit about the ending scene of this film makes absolutely no sense. And there's a little bit more rickety things going on here, but I still think it's a great family film. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think that we're largely on the same page with that. Yeah, I mean, is it impenetrable to, to criticism? Of course not in this room. <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, it is It is still, again, in that Richard Harris era uh, family movie, even though I do think that this one is actually scary, like in, in a particular way, though, that's like scary for a family movie, though, mm-hmm. and not the kind of like darkness that we get in the later movies. You know, the the basilisk monster is kind of a classic, a literal monster versus the more kind of interpersonal evil that we get that's more of a part of the later one. So here we have this actual physical giant snake. And I think that that is what I mean when I say that it's scary in a kid's movie way, even though, you know, this basilisk is apparently slithering around. And we know because we can hear Parcel Tongue through Harry just like whispering, yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Like, why? Like, is that the implication that Snake's inner monologue, where they're just going around, is just like think about killing? Dana, this is an evil snake. (laughs) Yeah, and it's also slithering around. Get it, slithering. Mm. It's slithering around pipes, apparently. And this snake is fucking huge. Like, how big are the pipes in Hogwarts? Yeah, I don't know that off the top (laughs) of my head. Yeah. Um. I think one thing that I noticed more in this movie and is definitely true about the first movie and all of them, but it's that the production design of these movies is impeccable. Mm -hmm. And 
not just so much like, I mean, sure, they, you have some party city shit that looks pretty wonky, but there is just so much going on in every frame of this movie. There's always stuff in the background. You see Dumbledore's office in this movie and like there's just so much on the walls. Yeah. Everything in the Great Hall looks beautiful. I, I mean, there's a reason that most of the Oscar nominations for these movies are in like art design and production design and stuff. It makes every single part of the wizarding world feel lived in. And I really love that about these movies. Yeah, it's very maximalist, which is a fun contrast to, I feel like a lot of kind of like sci-fi dystopian things that are really popular right now have a very like sleek minimalist design, Mm -hmm. which I think can feel grating because it feels done over and over again. Feels lifeless or emotionless. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to have just all, you know, just this this literal fire everywhere and color everywhere and kind of, you know, campy costumes and things like that where it's not trying to conform to an aesthetic to look cool. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, we did talk about how this franchise has a very good uh, just basic storytelling structure that it's set up and payoff. But this movie has the only example that I noticed that has a useless detail that is never paid off in any of the films ever. What? And that's the scene where McGonagall teaches them how to turn an animal into a cup. Oh. And like you'd think somewhere down the line that they would turn an animal into an inanimate object and that have to be a thing, but it never comes up. Like that moment or I'm being trying able to, to do remember that. now like is there a conversation they're having during that scene so that- i mean i think well there's sort of two reasons i guess for that it's one is to show that ron's wand is still broken yeah i guess and then the other is to like give an excuse for hermione to ask a question about the chamber of secrets uh, so that's that scene but it just feels so weird that that moment is in there and you see him turn the animal into a goblet and then that never comes up ever like transfiguration is never used in the series ever yeah well i mean i i guess and this is probably a stretch but but being an animagus is like a form of transfiguration i guess so maybe we could extrapolate that this is some kind of foreshadowing of the scabbers situation but we already have mcgonagall being able to turn into a cat yeah i I, yeah i'm trying to be generous (laughs) for once The other thing that's really cool about this movie is that I always forget how many iconic characters from the series come from this movie, Mm -hmm. right? You, you get Dobby, of course, which we can talk about. Of course. Um, You basically get your actual introduction to Molly, uh, Molly Weasley. You get Arthur Weasley, Lucius Malfoy, um, Moaning Myrtle, Aragog, who has a really stupid name and is like aggressively close to Aragorn for no reason. And then of course you get Tom Riddle in the flesh. But uh, which of these characters do you think is, like, the one that stood out to you the most? Um, I love Kenneth Branagh as Gilderoy Lockhart. I didn't mention him. Oh. Pick someone up. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I love Kenneth Branagh as Gilderoy Lockhart. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, I, I just love the Lockhart character, but I, I think he's a, he's a good cast in that, like, you you get the kind of, like, he is not at his prime anymore and you almost like can feel uh, the vibe of like college professor who is like making you buy his own books vibes but i i I must ask like how how did he pull one over on the whole like hogwarts hr process that like how was he like shouldn't shouldn't they have known that he was a quack 
Yeah, clearly Hogwarts does not vet its professors clearly. because they could have been like, well, I guess you probably can't ask Professor Quirrell to take off his his turban. Yeah. But like th- there there's a lot of things that he should do. We we find out in the fourth book that there's a truth serum, which I personally think every single Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher should be forced to take yeah. and be like, hey, you secretly working for the Dark Lord? <laughs> I guess that's that's not in the, the budget for Hogwarts to have an HR department. No, it is not. Maybe they should, you know, take a take something from the Mongo world for once. Yeah, um, a lie detector test. Because HR is famously an amazing system that <laughs> never goes awry. Um, but yeah, I also think, I mean, I think that Lucius Malfoy is a great character. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And he, everything he says is absolutely insane like because it's always to children like we really only ever see him when he's like talking to harry or talking to the weasleys and it's like if someone said this to a child like i would make a citizen's arrest (laughs) like he's just like threatening them constantly he's so mean and he also is this is i guess skipping a little bit but he is cut off, but he seems to be attempting yep. to Avada Kedavra Harry in broad daylight in the middle of a hallway for giving Dobby a sock. Yeah. <laughs> and Dobby is a servant who is, in theory, very easily replaceable. And also, in theory, he doesn't want, you know, on his payroll anymore. He's clearly not a loyal servant, which good for him, you know, like rise up. He has nothing to lose but his chains. But like, what? what, what why is he so mad? And he was going to murder Harry over yeah. this at Hogwarts. Yeah, I, I don't know what his end game there was. Um, and I mean, the whole Dobby character, who I think is actually the CGI looks looks very good for 2002, holds up really well. Um, the whole Dobby character makes me question more of the Wizarding world and like what's the point of house elves when you can literally use magic to clean things yeah so all of that falls apart would have been in spew oh what that's the hermione's yeah 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 i would have because no that's the right side of history yeah yeah, it's pretty fucked up what they do to enslave these little house elves but um you know dobby is i think an iconic character in the franchise even though in the movies he's only in two movies he doesn't come back until Oh, he he sacrifices himself. I one of my favorite parts about Dobby is that in the opening scene, he's pretty unbearable. Um, like he's so frustrating. And I think because of that scene and maybe just like the way that his voice is all squeaky, my dad despises Dobby. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say he he hates Dobby and he thinks he's the same exact character as Jar Jar Binks. And I remember when I was reading the seventh book and I was like, Dad, you know how you hate Dobby? Well, he actually turned out to be pretty good because he dies to save Harry. And he's like, good. <laughs> he's like, thank God. <laughs> yeah. I I mean, I think that Dobby can obviously be annoying, but that's like sort of the point. But obviously he has a heart of gold. And when he ultimately does die, it is very sad. Oh, yeah. But in this one, it's almost like a classic case of when you're like watching a rom-com and you're like, just explain what you're doing and then this miscommunication will be over and everyone will understand and be on the same page. And Dobby's always like, Harry Potter cannot go back to school. And it's like, just say why. Yeah. Like, and just explain yourself. That was pretty close to a Yoda voice there, Dana. Yeah, well, I might be mixing my, mixing my repertoire of... Um, <laughs> 
stock voices. But, you know, it's like, or it's like when he's like hiding the letters, it's like, what is this solving? Like, you're just creating more animosity towards yourself. You're just ruining things. Like, just can we just sit down and have a conversation and communicate openly for once in our lives? Well put. Well put. If, if more people were less like Dobby and more like you, the world would be a better place. That's what I've been saying for years and no <laughs> one will listen. Let's talk about the spider scene, which I think is the kind of second act big set piece. Um, I think that scene is genuinely scary and yeah. really thrilling. And the movie or kind of like Harry plays it as Ron overreacting. Yeah. It's but like, Harry, oh, he's afraid of spiders. Harry like, is really lame. underreacting yeah. to the giant spiders that are surrounding him. Like the the other thing that I don't totally understand about this scene is that Aragog calls them his sons and daughters. And like where did Aragon how how? I don't know what the the it I'm what I'm asking you to do is explain giant spider reproductive <laughs> reproduction. Which I do have a master's in, fortunately, and I'm here today to talk about. Yeah, I, I just I guess I don't really and like why are some of them kind of big and some of them you know, whatever. But th that scene is is really cool and genuinely wanna we didn't even talk about how ridiculous the Forbidden Forest is and the fact that it's completely off balance, oh. <laughs> except for when you get detention. Then you go in with a dude who got expelled from Hogwarts, so clearly did not have a full magical education, and then a dog. Like, that's their whole form of punishment. Pretty fucked up, but whatever. I, I think that has also been beaten to death on Twitter and Tumblr. So, but yeah, I, I think this scene is is really great. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think I think it's pretty horrifying. And as someone who's afraid of regular sized spiders, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have held up pretty well. Before we move on to most iconic lines, I want to talk a little bit about the very ending scene of this film. It kind of makes no sense just from a storytelling perspective, not logically or anything, but the whole scene at the end is set up as like this grand return for Hagrid and like everyone stands up and is clapping because Hagrid has been cleared. His name has been cleared and it's been, he's been vindicated. He spent some time in Azkaban prison, which is messed up. And like, there's this thread throughout the movie that's sort of like, we're supposed to think that Hagrid fucked up and opened the chamber of secrets and everybody thinks that he did and then at the end it's this big hurrah that he's redeemed but like that has nothing to do really with the central conflict of the film and i thought that it was weird that it ended like that like this was this big hurrah and this is what the whole film was building up to yeah i don't know if they were just like looking for sort of a reason to have an ending that sort of mirrored the first one of just like everyone in the hall and there's something to celebrate but we can't do the same thing again so like this is what we're happy about but but yeah i agree that i don't i don't have a huge problem with it because i'm like hey hagrid's back but but yeah you from a from a storytelling perspective it doesn't make a ton of sense and i feel like nobody has a relationship to hagrid other than ron harry and hermione yeah. so everybody else clapping is sort of like what was this yeah. guy gone i don't remember <laughs> yeah. that uh, anyways, uh, let's go ahead and move on to most iconic lines. Dana, what are some of yours? So we have in the beginning, we have Harry saying, I'll be in my bedroom making no noise and pretending that I don't exist, <laughs> um, which I find um, to be something that comes up in my life. Um, <laughs> then we have um, Mrs. Weasley. Has, I feel like she has a ton of iconic lines throughout um, the franchise, but we have beds empty, no note, 
Car gone. Um, you could have died. died. You, you could have been, been seen. seen. Yeah, it goes on and on. But, but that's pretty great. Also, um, really all of her reactions to like the things with the car, like when she just goes, where have you been? That's the same. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, well, I thought it was a different one. But just like her inflection <laughs> on things, I just love. Um, and I don't know, this is iconic in that I don't think I think of this as that memorable, but it's, I thought, I think this is one of the funniest lines when, when um, Harry and Ron are doing the Polyjuice Crab and Goyle situation and they're like talking to Malfoy and like he like asks what they're doing or something and one of them says reading and Malfoy just goes, reading? I didn't know you could read. I've read, ironically, that that is Ad-libbed. an ad-lib. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are all great lines. I You missed the one that I think is just the runaway oh, no. winner, which is scared Potter. You wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which maybe that's just because that's the thing that they ended every ABC commercial that was like advertising that this movie <laughs> was going to be playing on Tuesday night or whatever. But that to me is just so iconic. Um, I love every time that Ron is freaking out. He says, why spiders? Why couldn't it be follow the butterflies? And then... When they get out of the the when they get out of the forest and they he says follow the spiders follow the spiders if Hagrid ever gets out of Azkaban I'll kill him and I think that's really funny. Also crazy that they send Hagrid to Azkaban. Yeah, yeah. like where they send like war criminals. Yep. <laughs> um, some other ones I I have. Well, what did you expect? Pumpkin juice, which is just weird to me because I've never considered drinking pumpkin juice or thinking that that's like a a thing that's supposed to taste good? Well, I feel like that's very much like a Harry Potter world thing. Like, okay. I feel like that's not like a... That's pretty random. Yeah. And then um, when they're making the polyjuice potion and Hermione says that it's going to take a month, I love that Harry's inflection when he's like credulously says, a month? And he he like emphasizes the TH for some reason. He goes, a month? And it, I I love that line. Yeah. Do you want to talk about any Potter problems that you have? Sure. We, we've kind of hit most of mine, I think. Um, I have a couple. So one is, so we again, we know that Petunia and Vernon hate Harry, just an absolutely just irredeemable amount. And in theory, they shouldn't want, you know, you would assume that they don't want him to live with them. And yet every time he tries to leave it's really upsetting to them <laughs> and including so when the Weasley boys come and pick Harry up in the unauthorized flying car, Vernon falls out of a second story window trying to stop Harry from leaving. And it's like, you don't like him. Why are you do- why are you doing the most you could possibly do <laughs> yeah. to ensure that he doesn't leave? I know they don't want him to learn magic, but like, don't they see how... They just have to let him go to boarding school for a few years. He's out of their hair. And then he'll just be gone. Like, why are they trying so hard to keep him there? I've never understood that. Another one that I think is pretty significant and that it comes up in a lot of these, and I have it um, for some later matters, is why don't they have any kind of history class to learn about all the important wizarding stuff that goes down? That's one of my nitpicks, That Harry always finds out about from Hagrid or Dumbledore letting slip some cryptic throwaway line yeah for example in this movie the way that this proves problematic is if harry knew that voldemort's name was tom riddle this movie would have been over like halfway through (laughs) but like did no one ever think 
to to teach them like about this you know like what what are they what are they teaching them i i i truly don't understand and finally this movie really poses the question to go back to what i was talking about at the beginning with the salazar slytherin thing which again is the sort of like backbone for the conflict that we're really going to see establish the two sides throughout the rest of harry potter is like you have four houses and one is like the nazi house and you just kind of let the children like do that like they're never like maybe we should like you know changes but like this is literally rooted in a tradition where this guy is like pure bloodline or like get out of our school like shouldn't they have changed that at some point yeah that's something that i've always wondered and i think the wrong criticism is that oh you should just expel all slytherins because i think what the movies do kind of a bad job at doing and what the books do a better job at doing is that like not all slytherins basically there are good slytherins but the idea that like they just let the kids say things like Malfoy says at one point, like, oh, you'll you'll be next, Mudbloods. That's aggressive. That's really inappropriate. And like the fact that none of the teachers are like, Malfoy, you can't say that. Or Slytherin, yeah. you can't be promoting what is effectively um Aryan supremacy, right? Like yeah. it's it's really weird. And I mean, it's just another testament to how Hogwarts hates its students, yeah, I guess. But it, but I guess to to what you're saying though, it's not that I feel like the thing is, the way that I see it is, it's not that not all Slytherins are bad. It's that not all kids are bad. But then why be putting the kids in this house that's rooted in this tradition? Don't get rid of the kids, but why not get rid of Slytherin? Oh, I see. And just like make a new house. Yeah. Or or just like don't. And I, I get that like it's probably like, well, you know, the, the shorting hat, like this is just the way that it has to be because this is tradition. But it's like he was an awful person. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know? Yeah, it's true. I don't know. Um, all very good nitpicks, I think. Thank you. I, I agree with those. I just have a couple. I think this one has been beaten to death, but I think it's absurd that they specifically, when they're using the flu network, they specifically tell Harry to speak <laughs> very clearly. Yeah. And then he just goes, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what the fuck, Harry? The, you lit. Whatever. That's fine. Um, I guess that's just Harry being nervous and stupid. And None of that actually makes sense, like why he ends up in Nocturne Alley instead of, but uh, whatever, yeah. that's fine. Um, you hit my point on how there's no history lesson. They should definitely be taught about like pure blood racism in the wizarding world. Although I guess one can argue and can be correct that our school system in the real world yes, that is true. Uh, needs to be improved to teach the history of racism. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a nitpick so much as just like, Let's think about this logically. The idea that Tom Riddle sat down and wrote his name out on a piece of paper and realized that he could spell <laughs> I am Lord Voldemort is Well, well he insane. made up the word Voldemort. Like, it's not like he like realized like, oh, fuck yeah, I can spell Voldemort. You no, know? Like, I know, but he did still realize that he has I am Lord in his name and yeah. then used the remaining letters. And just for the record, I can also spell I am Lord something with my name. And I've tried to come up with something clever and I and I never can. But I, I just I can't imagine doing that and then also being like, and that's how I'm gonna go by when I kill people. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, especially the like Lord thing is like yeah. I, like when the other adults subscribe to referring to this other man as like Lord, it's like Lord, Lord, Lord. Don't you like respect yourself and else? Like I know the answer is no. 
But like, and I'm sure if Trump was like, call me Lord now, there'd be plenty of people who would. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous, the whole idea. And, and even the fact that they call themselves Death Eaters. Oh, yeah. Oh, I have I have <laughs> something to say about silly... that. Okay. Okay. Let's go ahead and move on to uh, favorite moments and then um, move on. What are some of your favorite moments from from uh, whatever this is called, Chamber of Secrets? <laughs> um, I think uh, a wonderful, iconic moment is when Dobby is freed. Um, which the way that it happens is like, you know, we did have a conversation when we were watching it of like, it's kind did, of a technicality. Did, did, was he never like, you know, just coincidentally handed any piece of clothing? Like, does there not really have to be any intent behind the handing of the clothes? But it is it is a wonderful moment when Dobby is freed, when he's like, Master has given Dobby a sock. Um, so we love that for him. Best wishes on his journey until his untimely death. Um, <laughs> this movie introduces Mr. Weasley, whom I love. Um, and I love because he just has such fun dad energy. Like when they get yeah. back from stealing the car and he's like, how'd it go? And then Mrs. Weasley like hits him and he's like, oh, that was very wrong indeed. Um, <laughs> so I love him. And then like just his fascination with muggles, I think is so funny. Mm. Of Just like he asks Harry, like, what is the function of a rubber duck? Um, I just love all those moments. He's just like such a happy guy. And finally, <laughs> I love... Um, and I love imagining it in action in the classroom when Lockhart gives no lesson and just sets free these yeah. Cornish pixies. <laughs> like, it's just like, have fun. Like, I just love just imagining doing that to a bunch of students and just seeing what they would do. This is the first day of class, too. Like, yeah. this is like if you go to biology class and then someone's like, today we're going to learn about bees. Yeah. <laughs> just releasing bees. Because the best way to learn about something is have it just kind of set upon you. Yeah. <laughs> it's absurd. Um, great moments. I think my the the most iconic moment for me is the howler scene. Weasley's yeah. got himself a howler. That's amazing. Um, one of my personal favorite moments is just something about like Fox the Phoenix spontaneously combusting in <laughs> front of Harry is so funny to me. Yeah. Like Fox is just like, ah, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> and just just imagine that happening to you and not knowing that that bird is going to be reborn and just yeah. be like, what the crap like how do i explain that <laughs> yeah i i thought that was so funny um but then the actual like badass moment in this movie for me is the entire basilisk scene i think it looks really cool we've talked about the design it's super slick uh and i love how practical the effects are it really feels like it's an actual large snake like i don't know how much of it is practical but it does very much at least feel like the practical dinosaurs used in jurassic park mm -hmm. so um i really love that i, I think it's it's a great design yeah, yeah, I think I think too the the Chamber of Secrets scene is pretty good. I will say that you know, I I don't we are having a conversation about this about the extent to which we believe, you know, that the whole Horcrux idea had been set up and that if it had been established at this point that the diary was a Horcrux, unclear, but something that seems really convenient is that Harry stabbed the diary with a basilisk fang. Yeah. And he seems to do it kind of being like this'll get him like you know like knowing that this is somehow going to work which is kind of absurd you know that he just like it just is like yeah like well he came out of the book so i'm gonna stab the book <laughs> and this will work and it does so i guess good for him but it is a little convenient yeah i mean we didn't talk about how this movie is two hours and 45 minutes yeah so maybe there's some deleted scene somewhere where they're reading up on basilisks and 
they are told that basilisk venom breaks charms or curses you learn in class yeah exactly i mean other than madame pomfrey being like here's these little baby things they cure uh petrification which is a thing that will be really convenient in this movie okay um so i think that's our entire conversation on chamber of secrets let's go ahead and take a break here and when we return we'll start talking about prisoner of azkaban Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chapotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, we're back. So let's go ahead and start talking about the third Harry Potter film, The Prisoner of Azkaban. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? There's something moving out there. It was a Dementor. One of the guards of Azkaban is searching the train for Sirius Black. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to be forgiving. So this is the first film in the franchise to not be directed by Chris Columbus. He chose not to return because he wanted to spend more time with his kids, which, fair, I guess. So there were a bunch of other directors that were courted, uh, including Guillermo del Toro, who turned it down because he thought that the two film, uh, the first two films were too bright. Uh, Mark Forster, who didn't want to work with kids again after working with Freddie Highmore and Finding Neverland, lol. And then M. Night Shyamalan, who actually... <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't he, know that. He turned this down to do The Village, so I guess that worked out for him. We also had uh, Callie Corey, who I'm not sure who that is. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, of course, who was Gilderoy Lockhart, and then finally Alfonso Cuaron, who ended up doing the film because he was convinced to read the books by Del Toro and uh, decided that it was a good good fit. So um, in my opinion, this is the most inspired directing choice for a franchise film that I can think of ever. This was obviously before he made Children of Men and Gravity and then Roma, but it's still really surprising to me that this, like, what I would call an auteur he came in to direct the third installment of the Harry Potter franchise and then was like, oh, okay, no, bye, I'm done. <laughs> and, and I think this film is easily the most technically fantastic. It's a genuinely great film. I think it's a huge departure from the first two films and it's definitely more mature, though I do still think that it manages to maintain the whimsy and the fun mm-hmm. of the first two films, which some of the other films do not. But uh, Dana, overall thoughts on Prisoner of Azkaban? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you said. I think this is my favorite movie, like as a movie mm-hmm. of these. Um, 
And I think that I, I love the artistic departure that you're talking about. I think the way that this movie is stylized tells you not only is it growing up a little with its characters, but this movie is it has ambitions beyond um, just moving the plot forward into being, you know, a work of actual, you know, film art mm-hmm. in a way that I think makes it really fun to watch. And I think that it's really important for the pacing of the series that this happens here. Because as we were watching the fourth movie just last night, I was thinking, like, you know, like, this is really dark. And if you just jump from the second movie to the fourth movie, like, it would be really, you know, disorienting. But the third movie, I think there's this really cool intermediary step where we're building up to that, but in a way that feels, you know, earned in a way that feels paced really well. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean... Just even the way that Quaron uses the Whomping Willow mm-hmm. to show the changing of the seasons yeah. and the changing of the time. That's just cool visual storytelling. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to dump too much on the director of Goblet of Fire, Mike Newell. I mean, he he has his talents and everything, of course. But I think this is the last film that in the entire franchise that feels like a um, not an artistic statement, but like a personal statement. Like there are many artistic things in the fifth fourth movie and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and all all that and i'm also not saying that the first two films aren't artistic in and of themselves like the production design amazing but just you can tell that this movie is directed by somebody else Mm -hmm. and he put his stamp on it and it's it's really cool yeah and i think that we get that from the very beginning um just like right before you know when when harry's still um just after he's run away after the the aunt marge incident um you know and the grim shows up and little things establish that this will be a different type of movie so even just the flickering of the street lights and the way that the things yeah. are kind of creaking on the playground it's doing a lot more to establish a vibe than using like more obvious elements of the wizarding world it's it's using just things like lighting and scenery to to really build sort of a mood and on the ride with the night bus just the feeling that you get when watching that you know is the feeling of of something different um and you you feel you know that that hand guiding this towards that um i also want to note something that you know has been said about the one of the major changes that people talked about i remember even when it came out is the decision to how the decision to change how the characters dressed Mm -hmm. was was something that i think a lot of people were unsure about it first because in the first two movies when they're at Hogwarts, we really only ever see them pretty much in their robes. But now we see them, you know, in more kind of traditional, just, you know, like outfits that people wear. Um, And I think that that lends to making these kids seem more, you know, like relatable kids that people can see themselves and their bodies. And it it might seem like a minor change, but I, I actually really like what that does. That's a good point. Yeah, the the kids are noticeably older. Definitely. And, I mean, we keep talking about how this is a little darker and a little more serious, but I think this is, of the three films so far, actually the funniest of the films. Yeah, oh no, I agree. I, I was surprised by yeah. how many times I was laughing. Just, like, little tiny things, and I think Coron is really good at that. It, like, he's still holding on to the whimsical things and the sort of little charming things, like the, the, the fucking book that is also a monster yeah. for no reason. Like just just all those little touches are are really good. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is is true to life in that like when kids are, you know, like get, getting to be like 13, 14 and like they understand 
you know, like sarcasm better Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I don't know if it's a decision to make the characters embody that or if it was literally the actor sort of being able to be a bit more, you know, not as just sincere, like we want to save the world, but have (laughs) a little bit more edge to them, um, I think is something something that helps. Yeah. Let's talk about the cast of this movie because the additions are simply put incredible yeah uh michael gambin yeah david thulis is that how you say his name thulis maybe i always just thought it was thulis david thulis whatever yeah gary oldman emma yeah. thompson yeah and then timothy spall i think all of those mm-hmm. castings are amazing mm-hmm. i i want to give a particular shout out to timothy spall because that guy i was horrified of him as a child and he he actually looks like a relatively normal person in real life (laughs) and like other movies but when i was a kid i was like what the fuck is up with this yeah he is so rat-like yeah yeah it's it's amazing but i i also love david thulis um as professor i am a wolf yeah (laughs) who uh (laughs) he's he's a great twist on the idea that in the first two movies the defense against the dark arts teachers were evil so in mm-hmm. this movie, there, there's kind of like a pump fake of, oh, wow, he actually was evil. How did we not see that coming? But then it's actually that he's not evil. Um, I liked that. And I also think that whole like last third act of this movie is amazingly done yeah. and actually has a ton of twists and turns in it that I wonder how it works as somebody who like, hasn't read the story and seen the movie so many times. Like, I wonder if it's genuinely surprising that. Peter Pettigrew is scabbers and all of this stuff. Because when I think about it, some of those twists, they're not quite M. Night Shyamalan level, but it sort of makes sense that maybe he was courted for this movie because there are some third act twists that completely change the story. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I have also some thoughts on that that I have allotted for the next movie about thinking about what it would be like to, to as an adult, come to this and um, experience it for the first time, not knowing what was going to happen, because I wonder how much I would be able to figure out. Because, you know, when we're watching it, we're like, you know, how did they not, you know, why did they never look on the Marauder's map and wonder why a man named Peter was always sitting in Ron's lap? Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, we have all of these questions like that. But I wonder, you know, if you're watching it, if you would be like, oh, wow, I, you know, did not see that coming at all. I think that one thing that this movie does that's really cool is um, the way that it introduces the Dementors and the way that the Dementors function in the movie. Um, And I'm going to have to keep an eye out for how they function in the later films because I don't remember those as well. But I love the artistic choice to portray them with this like faceless, vaporous form wherein they're like basically incarnations of fear. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Harry is talking to Lupin. And he asks Lupin why the Dementors affect him so much more than his classmates. And Lupin explains that it's because Harry has witnessed and lived through these true horrors that many of his other classmates can't imagine. And this is not only, like, elucidating for us in the context of Dementors, but also in the context of how Harry and Lupin have developed this, like, instantaneous bond. Mm -hmm. And we throughout the series, you know, get the sense that Harry bonds more easily with adults than kids often. And it could be weird that he goes on all these like one-on-one walks with his teacher. (laughs) But it makes sense in the context of this shared experience of trauma that Harry and Lupin have both gone for, gone through. And it feels really validating for Lupin to be explicit with Harry that like, 
you know, you, there's nothing wrong with you. Like you have had a hard life and that is why. And you are not weak or lesser than other people for being more scared of something. Um, and I think that the way that he teaches Harry to then, you know, fight the Dementors is is actually really heartening in that sense. And it's, you know, to an extent, you can repel them by conjuring happy memories, but having those happy memories in complement to traumatic ones isn't itself enough to knock back the Dementors. Like, you have to channel that positivity in combination with willpower to find a strength within yourself that can truly drive out that shadow. And this is in the form of the Patronus, which is a huge kind of reveal in this movie. And that looks different for each in- each individual. And I just think that this is like a really cool like exploration of like trauma and how people respond to trauma. Yeah, yeah. Lupin is by far my favorite teacher, I think, in the entire series. Um, I was going to say he's by far my favorite defense against the dark arts professor, but it's a pretty low bar yeah. to clear <laughs> retrospectively. Um, the scene that you mentioned on the bridge, it's, it's a fantastic scene in the entire series. And it's really great to see these like moments of brightness in an otherwise relatively dark story. And that's a, like, I mean, I guess hopping to one of my favorite scenes in the movie is I think Quaron does a really good job at introducing these like genuine moments of human connection. Mm-hmm in a way that some of the other movies really struggle with. And the one that I'm thinking of is just the scene of Harry and his friends in their room Mm -hmm. eating those like candies that make them sound like different animals or trains or whatever. And I I guess it's a useless scene. Like it doesn't tell you anything about the world. Like the fact that these candies exist doesn't matter, but it's just such a like genuinely happy moment in a film that, as we zoom out of that room and see all the Dementors floating around the castle, like yeah. there's so much darkness here, but there are moments of brightness. And I think that's the best part of this series. Yeah, I actually had that moment on my favorite moments list because yeah, I almost think it's one of the only moments in the whole series where we just see people like hanging out and with like fun. no yeah. kind of other MO. And it it's I think it's really important to have that because it lends credence to the idea of Harry actually liking Hogwarts because most of the time we see him, you know, really horrible things are happening to him, but he's always like, I got to get to Hogwarts. Like I got like, this is my home. And it's like, well, this is actually, you know, kind of a horrible place for you. But here it's like, oh no, like, look, he has a community. Like he has fun. Like he gets to be a kid. But this is one of the only times we really get to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I I wish there were more moments like that and that, especially in the later films, but, um, we get kind of three creature introductions in this film that I want to talk about. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Dementors, which are literally one of the scariest fantasy concepts of all time, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Like, those things are fucking terrifying. And the the introduction scene to them with the train, terrifying. But anyways, um, not too much to talk about those in this movie, I think. I do think it's funny that at the beginning of the school year, they're just like, hey, so... It's it's nothing, really. It'll be fine. This isn't going to affect us in any way. But just so you know, there's Dementors on the outskirts yeah. of of the, the, the campus. Um, it's probably fine. We were told that nothing's going to happen. It's like, yeah. I would be pretty concerned. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think the, the concept of Dementors is super fascinating. Yeah. This fate worse than death. Yeah, and the fact that they call it the Dementors kiss has always been weird to me that that was the terminology. Well, that makes it more scary. They I chose think, like... for when they suck out your soul. 
is Likes. Um, so I'm not sure who came up with that, but I always <laughs> said that was a little weird. Uh, we also get Buckbeak, the mm. hippogriff, which I think is one of the great fantasy creatures yeah. of movie history. Um, he's a total bro. And I think the CGI looks really good for 2004 or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, no, I love I love Buckbeak. Um and sad that he's immediately vilified and <laughs> then we later sort of off-screen have to experience him being executed, but we know that ultimately he ends up okay. Yeah. Um and then the last one is the idea of werewolves and Lupin being a werewolf not so subtly both thanks to Chekhov's werewolf <laughs> lesson lesson and also um the yeah. fact that his last name is Lupin. I think that the Snape substitute scene is so funny of just how vehemently he was like, someone please notice that Lupin <laughs> is a werewolf. Like someone I'm begging you, please notice. Um, I think is absolutely hilarious. Um, I also, I again, I love Lupin, but I hate Lupin werewolf. Like just, I hate the way it looks. Oh, it's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying and it's like, it's not even like like it's not even like furry like they yeah. didn't give it any kind of redeeming quality of wolf um and so that's like a little bit like uh could this is an interesting <laughs> take on werewolf and I guess that does make it scarier but I know that you know I know that it's Lupin and I know that he's in there but I do also I guess on on the note of Lupin I think that a a really interesting sort of like emotional point to think about is imagine like being Lupin and Harry comes into your office Lupin's just figured out that Harry has the Marauder's map which of course we know um that Lupin helped make Harry doesn't know that Mm -hmm. at this point and Harry says you know uh I don't think it works because I saw someone who I know to be dead and Lupin is like who is that and Harry says Peter Pettigrew and at the time Lupin says that's impossible but we come to learn that Lupin knows at this point that the map never lies and this does mean that Pettigrew is alive and this must be absolutely crazy for him because yeah. <laughs> Pettigrew was one of his best friends before you know he went wormy um and he believes that Sirius betrayed Lillian James right does he i so this is i never fully understood yeah, I I don't know. I I always thought that Lupin did always know that Sirius was innocent, but that he just assumed that um, Wormtail had died. Like I maybe think, I think Sirius did try to kill Wormtail. Yeah, no, he did. Yeah, and so I don't think that Lupin thinks that Sirius is a bad person. Okay, I I wasn't sure about that, but I I do think that when when Lupin and Sirius come together, so once um, we're in the Shrieking Shack and, you know, the Grim has sort of dragged them there and turned into Sirius and then, like, Lupin shows up, Lupin and Sirius do the worst job of being, like, we're actually the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're like, only one will die tonight when they're like, don't kill us. And it's like, could you just, like, explain yourself? Like, and then, like, Remus is just not explaining anything. And, like, this is their professor and they know him. But instead of being like, hey, guys, it's me. He's like, very well, kill him. And they think that the him is, like, Harry. Yeah, yeah. And they're just not explaining this at all. So, understandably, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are very upset because they think that their lives are being threatened. And, like, Lupin and Sirius are just like, yeah, just let, let no time to waste. 
but then they ultimately do waste a lot of time and um and Wormy gets away. Yeah, and they also like uh Sirius is just so unhinged in yeah. that first scene and then Which is fair. Yeah, but then thirty minutes later he's like, Let me have a heart to heart with my godson. Yeah. And like, you can come live with me in this cabin that I'm definitely gonna have. Yeah, which and... is like the only hopeful like ten seconds of yeah. Sirius's <laughs> life, which is sad. Uh, but that whole scene and then the subsequent like werewolf thing and the time turner, all of that stuff is so fascinating and it's so well done. Uh, I remember when we watched this for the first time, my brother was six at the time and he was just terrified of the werewolf. Like I distinctly remember having an Ask Prisoner of Azkaban sticker book and not being allowed to use the werewolf <laughs> sticker. Because, like, we had to hide that Aww. away from him because he was so scared of it. Um, but I love the last part of this movie. I think it's so good. And even though I have some nitpicks or Potter yeah. problems about the time turner, <laughs> um, I think it, it, it's a really well done piece of, like, storytelling. You want to go ahead and move on to most iconic lines? Sure. Um, I actually didn't have a lot for this movie. And, and yeah. that, that, that's not to say that there aren't a lot. Um, I, I wasn't that meticulous about um because i i got to this one this morning um but i do think that the most iconic line if we're just going to talk about like hands down is when hermione goes to punch malfoy and just says you foul loathsome evil little cockroach and she just absolutely punches him and it's an amazing moment yeah i don't have this in most iconic lines but it's in one of my favorite moments because this is a top 10 moment in 21st century film and just for some context, what, I'm I'm nine at the time of this movie coming out. Um, Hermione punching Malfoy is <laughs> a great moment for an entire generation of little boys. <laughs> that makes it sound so weird. <laughs> it's, it's just like, this is, it's very clearly like one of the first times that you go, oh my God, like, she's so pretty and like powerful and a strong person. Like, I don't know, I... This moment is is fantastic. I, I love this. Do you have any other uh, iconic lines? Not really that I haven't already kind of touched on. Yeah. Um, I have turned to page 394 oh, yeah, because yeah. that's, of course, iconic. Um, I think Expecto Patronum, it's not a line, but it is maybe the most iconic spell. Yeah, even just like the cadence with which he says yeah. it when he like screams at that one time. Yeah. And then the the last one that I have is like the, the sound bit of his mom screaming, hey! Oh, yeah. Like um, when he passes out because of the Dementors, I think those are all quote unquote iconic lines. Um, Potter problems. Any problems with this movie, Dana? Of course. So my first one is why is the only thing at Hogwarts, the most dangerous place on Earth, for which you need a permission slip to go to Hogsmeade Village? (laughs) Which is like the, it's like a, what, a few minute walk away and you go to like, go to a cafe and a candy store and they're like, you cannot do this without a permission slip. Also, the fact that they won't give Harry an exception is crazy. But also the fact that the one rule that Harry is seemingly unwilling to break is that he will not forge a little scribble on this thing, knowing that it probably wouldn't hurt anyone. Um, Not that I would ever do that, mom and dad who are probably listening to this. Um, But... You know, it's like the whole institution of the permission slip here, I find bizarre. Yeah, that's my first nitpick as well. It's just, it's, it's absurd. Like he breaks so many rules, but this is the one that 
yeah, I, how he doesn't just write Uncle Vernon on yeah. a piece of paper. And, and the fact that Dumbledore and McGonagall won't make an exception is, is absurd. Yeah, it's, when, like, they're clearly, like, in loco parentis of him and, like, you know, they know his family situation and they're just like, no, sit alone while all your friends go. Knowing what it will ultimately, of course, drive him to do, they know he's... A selective rule breaker, I guess. <laughs> and it's also like, it's not like there's liability problems in Hogwarts. There's clearly no culpability yeah. for Hogwarts to take account for anybody doing anything in this in these movies. So it's 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 a little bit silly. Yeah. My next one I already kind of touched on, but why was Pettigrew or was he never on the Marauders map before? Again, like why were no questions asked about Peter Pettigrew being on the map. Well, my guess is that it's only Fred and George who have access to the map. But I don't why? also even understand how they ever opened the map because wouldn't they need to know that they had to say, I'm, I solemnly swear I'm up yeah, to no Yeah, I good? guess we're just not supposed to ask questions about that. Well, I do also have, how did four teenagers figure out how to make this map, but no, like there's nothing else similar and this is apparently the only such map that exists, but this is an amazingly useful tool yeah. <laughs> and you know, in theory, would be a great security measure for them to look into if they ever, you know, wanted to do that. But but alas, I guess no one feels that's a worthwhile use of their time. Perfectly reasonable. It's it, it's one. Of, I mean, it's not the most ridiculous piece of magical artifact that no. is in this movie at all. <laughs> yeah, that's but, my uh, next one. OK, go ahead. Why don't you take it away? Um. Well, I mean, and I, I know that we can we can tag team it because I, I know that you have a lot to say, but. And the way that I phrased this, there's more than one question you could ask about it. But the way that I phrased it in my notes is, why is the time turner never used again, is the question that I chose to ask about the time turner. Um, you know, so we find out that we're capable of time travel and that the only <laughs> use of time travel that we really ever use in the entire series is for Hermione to be a nerd. Why? <laughs> yeah. Why was this a choice? Like, I would say I can't believe they entrusted this thing to a 13-year-old, but I kind of can, I guess, because it's Hermione. But but think of the other lives that could be saved with this. But apparently, and I and I know, I've you know, I've seen enough time travel stories to know, like, well, we can't go back and, like, do this because it'll change everything. But in this case, they, the two kids figured out a way to do it. So why was this never used for anything else? Yeah, I, there's no logical explanation to this whatsoever. I understand why they can't go back in time to, like, save Harry's parents. Yeah. Because then there's no franchise. But, like, the fact that it's never even talked about again or that, like, somebody dies. And, well, I guess I guess the idea, right, in time travel is that, like, if somebody dies and you go back and save them then that's already actually happened or whatever right which is what i think is really fascinating about the time travel in this movie i mm -hmm. love the way that they use time travel in this movie it's i think non um exaggerating it's probably one of the best uses of time travel in any movie it just makes complete sense that mm -hmm. like everything has already happened mm -hmm. but yeah it, it does seem like maybe this artifact would be useful in other moments later on in the series yeah. and it's, it's kind of fucking stupid yeah definitely you know what else is fucking stupid what else werewolf powers <laughs> they make no sense <laughs> so we see in this movie that there is a scene where lupin turns into a werewolf but the old he doesn't turn into a, a werewolf until 
Hermione says, Harry, and then points at the moon and it comes outside of the the clouds. And I just like, I don't understand the mechanism to which werewolves powers are activated. Is it the light that comes from the full moon? Because the full moon is always there, regardless of whether we see it in the sky during the day or whether we don't see it because there's clouds and so like if it is the light in the moon can't you just stay inside yeah and not be affected or is it like a psychological change and he doesn't change until he notices that it's a full moon also how did this dude not remember that it's a full moon it's literally your lifestyle yeah well in this case he didn't have that much choice re being outside because this is just when this went down but the other times i guess but it seems to be like the thing that activates his transformation seems to be his awareness that it's a full moon which seems to imply that this is all just a psychological problem. So is everybody a werewolf and they just don't know it until somebody is bitten <laughs> by another werewolf and then they start being aware of it? Or like, if you forget that you're a werewolf, do you just not turn into a werewolf? There's all of these questions. None of it makes sense. Like, can you just blind yourself and then you'll never know when it's a full moon? Yeah. Can you trick a werewolf into transforming by making them think <laughs> there's a full moon? I just, what's going on with yeah. this, Dana? Well, I also wonder... So when Lupin begins realizing that it's a full moon, uh, Sirius is also realizing this, and Sirius knows the implications of what's about to happen. So Sirius kind of grabs grabs him and is shaking him, and he's saying, like, It's the man inside. Yeah, like, it's this heart is who you truly are. And I wonder if there's any precedent to, like, this working, like, yeah. when he kind of tries to talk him back into himself. Because in theory, like, Sirius has, you know, has known him for a long time, even though I guess he's been in prison for a lot of that time, but... You know, so it seems like he wouldn't do this if there were no chance that it would stop the transformation. So I wonder, you know, if there's a if there's any possibility of of that having worked and it just doesn't this time. But like when when Sirius is kind of like, no, don't do it. It's kind of like, bruh, like this this isn't gonna work. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad it didn't work because I hate that trope in movies of it's yeah. like, oh, just be strong. No, you're you're either a werewolf or you're not. Give me, give, but. Yeah, werewolf powers. They're yeah. dumb. One thing I do love is, um, and this is actually from my favorite moments, but... Yeah, let's go ahead and just move on into that. Yeah, is I love the the subtle um, physicality of Snape's immediate instinct when um, he sees Lupin has turned into a werewolf, is he just immediately goes to shield Harry, Ron, and Hermione, like you can tell, like without thinking. Um, and I think that that's like a really just nice moment without being too showy of showing us that Snape is a good guy and he does ultimately care about protecting them. Yeah. Because in the first few installments of Harry Potter, we only see Snape being horrible, really. And we only see him being mean and we only see him hating Gryffindors and Harry especially. And this is just kind of this nice moment where we do see like, no, he at least doesn't want them to die. Um, and again, seeing how just instinctual that is, I think is nice. You should put that on his resume for when he applies <laughs> to other teaching jobs. Yeah. Like, at the very least, I don't want kids to die. Yeah. So you That's can hire just me. all you really need as yeah. a teacher. Uh, do you have any other favorite moments that we haven't hit? Um, yeah, I, I think one that's really fun is um, the Bogart class. Yeah, that's with the Lupin last one that I have. Is I just think even like the, the way that music is used in that scene is a, a, a thing that we haven't seen so far in the previous films of just putting on that kind of like fast paced jazz music 
Um, and putting it on physically in the movie, we see Lupin kind of like put on a record player. And then they just get to like sort of have fun with this lesson um, is something that I think just, again, as just an element of fun to to going to school at Hogwarts that we don't get to see a lot of. Um, and then, yeah, I guess I guess we've sort of touched on all of the other ones that I had in here. One that I only quickly mentioned is I do like the like little exchange with Harry and Sirius when they do get to just have a conversation for once when it does seem like Sirius is going to get to be free because it's like one moment when you have hope for a future <laughs> yeah. for Harry of just like imagining him having this nice life where he gets to live um, with his godfather. And unfortunately, it never comes to be, but it is a nice thought. Yeah. Uh, we hit all my favorite moments. Um, the last one that I did want to talk about is that Bogart scene. I agree. It's it's just really fun. Um, I think it's kind of funny that all the examples that they show students are like materialistic fears. Yeah. Because I wonder what happens if your biggest fear is like dying alone. Yeah. Or something, you know. Or <laughs> Not like, to name names. Yeah. <laughs> so certainly not what my Bogart would look like. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, I'm scared of. Uh, yeah. I mean, dogs. they are. They are like kids. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it, it makes more sense at the time to, to be afraid of things like spiders and scary teachers and things like that and snakes yeah yeah all right um well with that let's go ahead and move on to the last film that we'll be talking about today this is the fourth harry potter film harry potter and the goblet of fire hogwarts has been chosen to host a legendary event the tri wizard tournament and now the champion selection victor crop Harry Potter! How did you do it? I didn't put my name in that cup. I don't want eternal glory. Dan, I'll just throw to you right away. Overall thoughts on The Goblet of Fire? Yeah, so this is our, our first PG-13 Potter, and it lets us know that pretty quickly. Yep. <laughs> um, with the opening scene, you know, we have immediately just Slithering Snake is like first shot. And then we see Wormtail, famously horrifying, and weird baby Voldemort, and Barty Crouch Jr., even though I guess we don't yet know who he is, but it's David Tennant, so that's fun. Um, and I had actually forgotten when we were watching the other ones that this is actually the first scene where we're really introduced to the concept of Avada Kedavra. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure the first chapter of the fourth book is called Avada Kedavra, and we don't, we haven't really known about this mm. until this point which is interesting um and we're also introduced to death eaters pretty quickly right after the bizarrely fast-paced quidditch world cup sequence <laughs> um and so yeah so this movie opens up really quickly by being like yeah this people are gonna die in this movie um which is something that the the earlier movies have tiptoed around a little bit yeah um yeah this is definitely a movie quote-unquote for grown-ups in the sense that it right away is just like hey this first scene is terrifying. Screw magic and whimsy. And I mean, there are still parts of this that are are kind of magical. I think the idea of having the Triwizard Tournament be the centerpiece of this film works really yeah. well. Um, it's in some ways the most cinematic of all the movies because mm -hmm. it has these, here's the first trial. This is act one. Here's the second trial. This is act two. Mm -hmm. So it has these three big set pieces and they are really fun to watch as people who are watching the movie i will say as people watching the triwizard tournament these would be really fucking boring to <laughs> yeah. watch 
Uh, <laughs> the first one is watching. I mean, I guess the first one theoretically is fun to watch if you do your job and correctly chain the dragon to the ground. Yeah. Seems a little ridiculous. But the second one, they're just looking at a lake. And in the third one, they're looking at, at bushes yeah. for like an hour to two hours. But um, I really like this movie. I think it's probably my personal favorite, even if it's not the best. And that might just be because of the dragons. But um, I think all the tasks are really good. The underwater scenes are really well done. The maze is scary. The The final moments of this film are terrifying and really hard to watch. So I think this is a, a really good and action-packed film. Yeah, and I think that the step up in maturity level is also reflected thematically in the yeah. way that this movie is the first time where I think that even as kids, we become aware that we can't trust the authority figures anymore. Because I think that the first three installments of Harry Potter have been setting us up to have a kind of reverence towards some of the senior wizards, especially, of course, Dumbledore, who has, as you and I talked about, seemed almost omniscient. Like, we get the sense that even when he shouldn't have, it seems like he's always kind of been a step ahead about what's going on. But there are so many things that happen in Goblet of Fire that beg the question, just like, how did you let this happen? Like, what yeah. is going on? <laughs> and how did so many of you, like multiple schools full of faculty, admin, the ministry, parents, allow the horrible things that happen in this movie, this imposter to come in and stage the most elaborate plot to steal one person's blood? Um, just do a blood drive. Yeah. Well, I said, or for couldn't uh bcj as moody just have been like i need your blood for class like you know like i feel like <laughs> harry would have been like yeah that sounds about right and i think that this not the worst thing a teacher has ever asked me to do <laughs> this will prove even more important in the next movie and the next book um you know as we see the ministry completely botch the response to voldemort's return so i think that this movie does a good job in transitioning to us to be like wait like, nobody knows what they're doing. Like, no one is handling this very well. Yeah, I think this movie, even more than the third one, is almost like a transitional movie. Because the third one still is relatively self-contained within Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie has a couple tasks. And one of those tasks is opening up the wizarding world. Not only geographically by saying, hey, here's Durmstrang and Bobotans or whatever, however you pronounce it. And I think all of that introduction, that's all really cool. But it also is saying here is all these other things that have until now been relatively innocuous. And so you've got like um, the World Cup and you've got essentially acts of terror and the Death Eaters and mm -hmm. even the Pensieve, the Dark Mark, all of these things that are expanding the world and saying, here's the more darker aspects of this world. And then the other thing that it's doing is it's also kind of you mentioned this when we watch it, that this is like the closest thing to a high school movie mm -hmm. that any of the films are. And high school is obviously a transitional period in people's lives. And I think this is the movie that is saying these kids are actually now growing up They're They're caring about things that they didn't care about before, like going to balls and and girls and all of this stuff. And it's clumsy and it's awkward and it's choppy. But everything after this movie changes. Yeah. And I think. That, you know, they have a really on the nose line about it at the very end that Hermione literally says exactly that. But like, I think that's a pretty important thing that this movie tries to do. And I think it does it relatively well. There, there's some choppy stuff, but um, 
overall, I like that the idea that this is a transition in the franchise and that being mirrored in a transition in the characters is pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely think that that's a really good point. And, you know, it makes sense that this movie, by the end of this movie, we're halfway through the the series as movies because mm-hmm. um, there there are eight of them. And so I think that it's kind of like a pretty clean and like, you know, now Voldemort is back and we have hit a very literal turning point. Yeah. And, you know, it's been fun in games, but now it's going to be something something really different. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the uh, overall effect of the movie, I think. But and you know, we've got the Triwizard Tournament and the climax of that is very much speaking to how it's kind of changing this series forever. But then a lot of the other stuff in this movie is the more high schooly frivolousness. Mm-hmm. You've got this thing where Ron is mad at Harry. Which is so annoying. Yeah, I, I think it's probably the worst part of this movie. Yeah. Um, and again, this is probably my favorite movie, but it makes no sense. It's really dumb. I understand that Ron is probably sick of being like Harry's dumb friend, but mm-hmm. just why he gets mad is so stupid. And the fact that there's no communication there. Yeah. All of that's dumb. Um, The Yule Ball is ridiculous. I love the Yule Ball. Okay. I think it's one of the most ridiculous things in the entire series. Why? So maybe not just the idea of the um, Yule Ball, but the fact that there's a rock band playing (laughs) at the Yule Ball. Like, that's the one modern thing that you're going to bring to Hogwarts is rock music. You you still use quills and candlelight, but somehow you're going to have electric guitars and rock music. Like, the students... So you don't think the institution of the Yule Ball is ridiculous? You think... I think the execution of the Yule Ball in this movie is fucking absurd. Okay. Like, I feel like all the students that are purebloods wouldn't even know what rock music is. Because we clearly see that Phil Chess and and in the previous movie that um, Lupin uses like a recorder. Like, there aren't... You don't need to know what rock music is to have a good time. You've seen Back to the Future. And then it's set up like there's like foldable chairs around tables like a prom. Yeah, it's very it's, promy. It's, yeah. But I but I loved this as a fuck? kid. Well, because when, when this movie came out, we were 10. This came out in 2005. And so I was like, I'm a 10-year-old girl. I want to see them go to the dance with their crush. And like, I thought that that was really fun. Like you said before, this brings sort of something new to the movies of they're they're sort of expressing romantic interest for the first time. Yeah, and it's not quite as horny as the sixth one. No, yeah. It's it's not overtly sexual, but yeah. but it's it is age appropriate um, you know, kind of romantic themes. Um romantic is even probably a strong word. But you know, like the idea of liking someone and having a crush on someone is introduced more explicitly. Um and we sort of get the beginning of the Ron Hermione like we we it might have been hinted at before, but I think this is when we start getting a little bit more explicit in how annoyed he is, you know, when she goes to the dance with Crom and how upset she is about him kind of not having seen her. As a, I love the moment where he's just like Hermione, you're a girl, and she's like, "Thank you for noticing." <laughs> um, and I think that that sort of and I don't I don't have super strong feelings about Ron and Hermione ending up together one way or another. But I, I do think this is the first place where we kind of see this beginning to develop. Yeah, Ron really botched that whole thing. Like, he he is not, he does not deserve Hermione. We'll put it that way. Like, he does some really shitty things throughout the course of this series. And everybody kind of just forgives him. But 
whatever. Another thing that this movie does is it continues the tradition of adding needlessly talented British actors to the Harry <laughs> Potter world. Brendan Gleeson yeah. as Mad Eye Moody. Amazing. I love that guy. Ralph Fiennes as Voldemort. Um I'm n I don't I don't know where it's appropriate to talk. Maybe we'll talk about more about him in the later books because he's or in the later movies because mm -hmm. he's very center of the frame in those ones. But I, I think he's very good as Voldemort. And then we, of course, have David Tennant before he's popular and Robert Pattinson, yeah. uh, of course, before he's po popular as well. Um, just so many good names. Yeah, thrown into it's, it's really amazing how just like it's like every British actor was in these movies. Um, and it just feels like its own like MCU where you're just like, and it's, but it's like with like yeah. old people. Yeah, like, it's like, and old the, uh, British you people. don't have to get in, you know, ridiculous shape to be in these. You can just be your old British self <laughs> and just show up. I agree. I think, uh, Ralph Fiennes is iconic. Um, and, and yeah, I agree that, you know, we'll continue to talk about him going forward, but just, um, watching him do, like, Cruciatus on Harry is one of the first things. I mean, he comes in, he immediately kills... Or no, does he kill Cedric or does someone else kill Cedric? I think Wormtail kills Cedric. Yeah, I Cedric. think so. But but um, Voldemort is doing Crucio on Harry, and it's horrific. Like, just, like, how, like him kind of, like, shrieking the curse even yeah. is just... Again, this is... It's really hard to watch, and it's really hard to watch Cedric die. It's even harder yeah. to watch everyone realize that Cedric is dead. Um, like when I was, when we were watching it last night, I was like, I did not remember. And I don't know if it's being older and being closer to the parent perspective almost of mm -hmm. watching this man, you know, realize what's happened to his son, um, is, is I, it was, I had to look away. It was so just heart wrenching to watch. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting chills right now and I, I did have to look away and like, I almost cried. Yeah. Just, just the like primal scream that he has and i mean yeah. props to that actor it's it's an amazing scene the movie does not need to linger on it so hard it, it's i mean i maybe it does because the whole idea is that cedric's death is the first major death and i mean i guess fuck barty crouch who dies earlier yeah. in the movie but this is a kid this is harry's friend and he's so nice like he's yeah. just such a good person in these movies and this this is really the only movie he's in and it's kind of Harry's fault, like Barty Crouch dying, not really Harry's fault. I mean, I guess it is because Barty Crouch Jr. is there because of Harry. But like he is like, no, grab the port key with yeah. me. He feels more directly linked. Yeah. And I, I do think that I, I believe the fifth movie opens up with like him having a nightmare about Cedric dying mm -hmm. and Dudley making fun of it. But like this is the first significant death in the series. And this is like... Even this movie is a turning point, but that exact moment is the exact turning point of when this series goes playtime's over and how upsetting it is and watching the dad react like that. It, it is brutal. Yeah. And it's almost especially because when Harry and Cedric get transported back, it's not immediately clear to the spectators that Cedric is dead. They just kind of appear there and everyone's cheering and it's like they're back and it takes you watch all these people kind of slowly realize and that's almost what's so horrifying is like just yeah. people becoming aware of what's going on and the teachers trying to figure out what to do because they have all their students there and they're just like there's a dead child you know standing sitting in front of all of our students 
Um, and it's, it's really, really, yeah, just distressing on every level. Yeah, this is also definitely the best acting that Daniel Radcliffe does. This and then when he's upset about um, and saying that he's going to kill um, Sirius Black in the third one. Mm-hmm. Like those like raw motion things. I think that's where he's the best actor. I think after this, he becomes a little stale. And it's here that it's like, damn, the it's hard to watch him like on top of Cedric's body. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, let's move on. Um <laughs> Uh, Danny, do you have something else you want to talk about? Yeah, well, just to sort of one more thing that I think is a really cool part of this movie, especially just as a movie, is so after Cedric dies, Harry's whisked away by the person we believe to be Mad-Eye Moody. Um, and this is when we get the reveal. Another that, twist. Yes. And I think that... I think that if you didn't know, and if you were watching this movie called, I think that this would actually be an amazing twist, I was realizing. Because when I was watching this, we do get a lot of kind of like cutaway shots to Moody. And we know like, oh, like, like he's, he's, you know, in disguise or whatever. And like, but if you didn't know, like, it's definitely not enough to, to throw you on the trail, I think. And the, the moment when, Moody is just asking Harry questions and Harry says, I don't remember saying anything about a graveyard professor when Moody is asking him all these questions and you're just like and and you see Moody like desperately looking for Apology's potion. And like when we just come to the realization that he's Barty Crutch Jr. and also the the realization that Barty Crutch Jr. as Moody did Crucio on that spider in front of Neville when he's the one we learn who did yeah. the Cruciatus curse on Neville's parents until they lost their minds is so dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that this twist, like if if this were just an independent movie, I think this would be amazing. You're you're a fan of twist movies. I am. And I compared this, I won't say to what movie, because I don't want to spoil that there's a twist, but there's an amazing or I don't know. I think you can you can say which movie it is. It's Primal Fear. Yeah. So it's if you, very reminiscent of If Primal you want Fear. a good twist movie, Primal Fear, and this is one where you, you might not predict what's going to happen, but it reminds me a lot of how this unfolds. Yeah, no, it, it's a really good twist, and I think it's a really good scene, and the setup to it and everything is good. And I like that all the clues are there for you mm-hmm. if you're looking for them. And it's it's one of those things that when you do know it, like Fight Club or whatever, it's almost like, how do you not see this yeah. coming? But that makes it feel earned. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the best twist that when yeah. it's like unexpected, but then retrospectively, it's super obvious. That's mm-hmm. that's a good twist on like the interstellar twist. Mm-hmm. One thing that I do think is kind of weird about this twist is that there are scenes in the next few books and movies that are kind of based on the fact that Harry and Mad-Eye Moody have a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> And, like, I'm pretty sure Harry wants to become an R because of Mad-Eye Moody, right? But, like, Harry and actual Mad-Eye Moody have spent zero time together. They have zero relationship. And anything that Harry is inspired to do because of Moody and, like, the fact that when Moody dies, it's really sad. Like, Harry has no connection to this dude whatsoever. It is all Barty Crouch Jr., which I think is kind of funny. Yeah. Well, they do, I guess, start developing a relationship as of the beginning of the Order of the Phoenix, but they do spend this. This would have been the bulk of the time they yeah. spent together is the year that Moody spent at Hogwarts, and that's something that you and I touched on in conversation. Is 
one, I guess, problem with the BCJ as Moody situation is almost just he's too good as Moody to it. The point where it's like, did he dedicate his life to learning how to like method act as (laughs) Moody? He's the Daniel Day Lewis (laughs) of uh... such that everyone who knew Moody like just asked no questions. Like, and also not only did he learn how to be that good of an actor, but also a good professor like he like by all accounts they all thought that he was a good defense (laughs) against the dark arts professor so it's like a pretty low bar to clear again yeah but it's almost weird just like how moody he like you know like you almost kind of and this again goes back to how did you know dumbledore and mcgonagall like no one was like wait i don't think this is the best order in the world who we know well. I think this is a Death Eater played by David Tennant, who does a weird thing with his tongue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely my biggest problem with the movie. It's it's kind of absurd and requires a lot of suspension of disbelief. But let's go back a little and just talk about some of the most iconic lines from this movie. Dana, what are yours? Um, I think that there is objectively a most iconic line to this movie, um, yeah. which is Dumbledore calmly saying, Harry... Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is kind of the go-to Tumblr thing about like how the movies are not good representations of the book, right? Like, yeah, and just about, and we've we've kind of been in dialogue about this throughout of the difference between the Richard Harris Dumbledore and the Michael Gambon Dumbledore, and that this is very of the Michael Gambon Dumbledore to be so kind of uh, incensed by Harry putting his name in. And again, we want to think like, shouldn't you, shouldn't you know, like, shouldn't you suspect (laughs) something like, and why are they just like, well, it came out of the goblet. He has to do it. I guess that's Barty Crouch and the ministry is kind of famously incompetent, but it just feels like just don't have him do it. (laughs) Like you already have a Hogwarts guy in here just let cedric do it you know and be like "Hmm, we're just gonna keep as is kind of not listen but no they're like came out of the goblet we gotta do it yeah uh that's my one of my big nitpicks too is like you can just not but i mean i guess maybe barty crouch jr knew that his father would be a stickler for the rules so he was like banking on the fact that his father would say that he has to do it. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, that that's probably the only iconic line in this movie. These these later line or later movies don't have as many iconic lines, and maybe that's just because we were older when yeah. they came out, and we didn't but, watch them quite as many yeah. thousands of times. I have another couple. I I love how Igor Karkaroff in the Pensieve, aka the Exposition Fountain, uh, says Barty Crouch junior like i just <laughs> he pauses and goes junior <laughs> and he's got kind of like a yeah. an accent it's it's funny it's also it's weird that the junior almost feels like it's the dramatic reveal then when really senior would have been the more yeah like it's <laughs> like oh like you thought i was gonna say regular barty crotch it's like that actually would have been quite the event to transpire yeah. but no yeah and, and then barty crouch jr instantly freaks out yeah he does not play this off well he could play it off cool i mean i guess there are truth serums and stuff so apparently you can selectively use that to get the truth who knows the the last iconic line that i have is harry telling neville no offense but i don't really care (laughs) which is we've all wanted to say that to a friend (laughs) at some point yeah 
So um, let's go ahead and do Potter problems. Dana, have we hit everything or do you have some more? Um, I, I do have some more. So the Triwizard Tournament happens every five years, which is quite often. But I mean, I guess we have, you know, like the Olympics every four. So whatever. So apparently every five years, three schools decide to abandon educating the children for an entire year. Well, I don't think they don't go to classes. We just don't see it. Yeah, but it, it seems like a gigantic disruption. Oh, yeah. To their education so that one student per school can compete in the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> With, you know, it's not even like, oh, it's like all the schools against each other. It's just one person, which is like not a great, you know, educational activity to just be like, yeah, we're just going to like put all the pressure of, you know, our entire school on you and that you can compete in these life threatening challenges. Yeah. Dumbledore also talks about the Triwizard Tournament as if it doesn't happen every five years, but maybe yeah. like every 20 or 50 years. But because it's every five years, two sevenths of the school already know that this is a thing. Yeah. And I'm assuming that Hogwarts doesn't host it every year. And maybe I don't remember how it's detailed, but maybe it's like three schools from all other schools. So like maybe it's like Hogwarts, Durmstrung, yeah. and Bow Bottoms aren't always the ones that are competing. Mm. But Theoretically, that means that two sevenths of the school has already experienced this in some capacity. Yeah, and even if they haven't, they, they should know about it. Know about it, but again, Hogwarts doesn't seem to teach them anything about their own culture. <laughs> well, the, it's also funny because, like, Fred and George, as Dumbledore are talking, are like wicked, as if they've never heard of this. Yeah, but if my math is correct, they're graduated in the sixth book, which means well, they leave early. Oh, do they? Yeah, remember they leave. Oh, okay. Quite dramatically. Okay. I it might be their last year, though, that they leave in. Okay. I thought that at this point, then, that they would actually be, like, their first year should have been the yeah, last no, time. Yeah, I, th I, th I don't, that might be right. I don't know. Well, whatever. Yeah. Anyways, it's just, it's it's kind of funny that this is, like, I think it's obviously just because to make it more of, like, a cinematic event, and this is the yeah. one Triwizard tournament that we see, and, but anyways, any other nitpicks? Um, yeah. So... No one was investigating all of Snape's missing polyjuice potion for the entire year. <laughs> yeah. Like Moody or BCJ Moody had like a huge stockpile that he apparently wasn't brewing himself. He was stealing and they were all just like, hmm, weird. Um, so that's a kind of, you know, not a shining, you know, portrayal of the the security system. But then also... After they figure out that Moody is BCJ, they say, send an owl to Azkaban. I think they'll find they're missing a prisoner. Yeah, how did they not know? Imagine if that's how, like, prison escapes worked. If, like, you had to, like, find the prisoner and call them and be like, you should check the cell. Like, <laughs> you know, he's not there. Like, in theory, this should be, Azkaban should be alerting everyone else. The and when they had Sirius escape, that was huge news. And they were like, no one's ever escaped from Azkaban before. And they were like, how did he do it? But now they're just like, hmm. Yeah. Bellatrix also escapes in the fifth one. And I think there's a thing where like the Dementors just don't really care anymore yeah. or something. So we'll have to we'll have to watch for that. But yeah, stay tuned. Um, Yeah, it, it does seem relatively brushed. I have no other nitpicks that we haven't hit already. And in, in... I have one small one Go is the movie makes a dramatic reveal that Emma Watson is pretty as if we are not supposed to have <laughs> noticed this. But they like have her come down and the way that I thought of it 
is it's like in a teen movie where the person takes off their glasses and all the boys are like, well, she's pretty, except Emma Watson hasn't been wearing glasses. And we've all been aware the entire time that she's beautiful. But all of a sudden, it's supposed to be like, whoa, when did this happen? Well, in defense, I think Emma Watson turned out to be way more attractive than they were expecting when they got her for the role of Hermione. Because I think Hermione is supposed to be relatively like average looking looking. or whatever um, in the books. And so I think in the books, it makes more sense that like, you know, she's normally kind of unkempt and then she cleans up and it's like wow but yeah i don't i'm kind of glad that they weren't trying to evaluate how attractive this 10 year old was going to turn into uh, when they were casting her but um that's definitely a pretty ridiculous moment in this movie and it's in that's just a a thing in all movies I, i think similarly i hate when movies have the trope where there's just like the entire school decides to pick on one person yeah, and like nobody does anything about it. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really unrealistic. Like that's not how bullying works. Bullying yeah. is much more psychological. Yeah. And it's often with someone who like really doesn't have anything to be bullied about them. Like yeah. it's just like, oh, this person's the main character. So everyone hates them. Yeah. I mean, that's the crux of being a high school movie, which as we've said, this one is like the most. Yeah. High school movie. So let's go ahead and uh, wrap up with favorite moments. Dana, what are your favorite moments from the fourth book movie? Um, I do like it when um, just the the quick scene of when McGonagall is like teaching them all to dance. And like she uses Ron as her little practice partner. And then later we get Neville just kind of adorably practicing alone. <laughs> it's again, it's just like one of those real moments where you just kind of see them doing something relatively normal um, that I really like. And then the other one that I, I, the moment I really like is when uh, BCJ as Moody turns Malfoy into a ferret and McGonagall <laughs> comes over and she's like, what are you doing? And he's just like, teaching. Um, and she's like, is that a student? Um, and I, yeah, I just love that moment. And it is, again, like, it's one of those moments where you're like, if we're probing the mind of Barty Crouch, like, why would he be doing, like, why would he hate Malfoy? Like, you know, like, wouldn't he like Malfoy? Like, is he just really committing to this, you know? I do have a feeling that many people, even Death Eaters, don't like Lucius Malfoy. Yeah, I guess that's his family. Um, But yeah, completely agree. It's that that's a great scene. And I love that he's like, I'm sure Dumbledore mentioned that you're never allowed to use transfiguration for punishment. And he's like, might have mentioned it <laughs> uh i love that scene i love the three unforgivable curses scene mm-hmm. i think it's a really great exposition dump in a way that doesn't feel like an exposition dump like here's imperius here's cruciatus here's the killing curse mm-hmm. boom 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 ton of information dispelled in like three minutes that's so really really good um i alluded to the fact that i love this movie because of the dragons I, the hungarian horned tail part like that whole scene is really mm-hmm. fun the cgi doesn't hold up as well as I thought it would, um, mm-hmm. especially compared to like Buckbeak. I think Buckbeak looks so much better. And the Hungarian Hortail looks like very clearly not in the the, the scene, but um, it's still a good scene. And then I think like just in terms of favorite parts of the movie, the last 30 minutes of this movie are just really, really good, even if they're like absolutely yeah, brutal. Really, really hard to watch. But yeah, but but I do agree that. It's not because they're bad. It's just because of how just, you know, upsetting. Yeah. And with that, we are getting ready for 
other upsetting moments like Sirius dying and Dumbledore dying yeah. and Lupin dying and George dying. So, uh, yeah, this has been our review of the first four Harry Potter films. Dana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I loved it. Is there anything specific you'd like to plug here? Um, not really. Um, you know, I'll be the first to tell you to vote, probably. Um, but, you know, that's that's coming up. So do that. Yeah, I have been including the uh, link to the website that you can use to register um, to vote. So check that out in the show notes. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for part two of our Harry Potter franchise discussion. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. <laughs>